welcome to the How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. As promised, this is one of two bonus episodes that we're going to be doing. And this episode was inspired by listener Brian D, who's a drummer. So today we are going to talk about how to be a session musician. And I'm so thrilled to have my favorite drummer in the world and one of my favorite humans, Brian Biglio. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, Emily. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Awesome. So, you know, I thought of you for this for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, ultimately you've had a really successful career as a drummer, as a multi-instrumentalist. So I want to take the listeners through your career and then we're going to take you through the lens of the book for your opinions on that. Hey, everyone. Before we get into this episode, I have a free symbol offer for you from Zildjian or a contest or a drawing rather. Um, So our guest today is Brian Biglione and he works with Zildjian. They have been kind enough to donate a 16 inch K Constantinople crash, which is what Brian plays in all genres. And all you have to do to be entered to win it is share this episode on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Tag me at mwizzle and tag Zildjian. I'm sorry I didn't check their handle, but I'm going to be the ones uh, checking the entries. So um, you have my handle, at emwizzle. And we are going to be pulling a name uh, out of everyone who posts this episode and contacting you. We're going to be pulling that name at the end of February. Um, I think February 28th. I don't think this is a leap year (laughs) this year. And we'll be contacting you uh, when we do that. So actually, let me pull up, sorry to belabor this, days of the week. Okay, February 28th is a Monday. So I'll be pulling that. I'll be pulling the winner on February 28th and then contacting you then. So again, to win this Zildjian 16-inch K Constantinople crash, all you have to do is share this episode, tag me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at emwizzle. Tag Zildjian. I'm sure you can find them very easily to be entered to win this free K Constantinople crash symbol from Zildjian. So um, thank you again to Zildjian. Thank you again to Brian. And I hope you enjoy this episode. So let's start at the beginning. Um, How did you get into drumming? I got into drumming through my father, who played in his youth, and just through, I think, a general wanting to share his passion, uh, bought me my first kit when I was about four. Um, and then my interest sort of developed around the age of eight or nine. And I really consider myself lucky because my dad was wholly invested in just imparting all of the things that turned him on about drumming and music to me without being a helicopter parent. So he really struck a fantastic balance uh, between just sort of exposing me to music, taking me to concerts, um, you know, playing records and sort of going, check out what's happening in this part, and like sort of air drumming in the living room and, and just generally kind of bringing me into that world. Uh, but, you know, I think around the age of, you know, around 12 or 13, when a lot of kids kind of take to a particular thing, you know, some kids are into sports, some are into this. And I really took to music and found my community and really started developing a sense of identity there. And pretty soon realized just from the experience of jamming with my friends every day after school or going to play the little, you know, sort of junior high party or something like that and seeing the excitement 
that instilled in knowing what I got from it. I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And, and later, I think in my teen years too, and especially, you know, anybody out there who goes through difficult times and has that music who really sees them through, I said to myself, if I can be part of the continuum of musicians that makes music that helps people like I've been helped, that's what I want to do. I love that. And I mean, this is on your Wikipedia, but I know this from knowing you personally. Um, tell us about, you know, Elvin Jones and and that, you know, not to ruin it for everyone, but meeting Elvin. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, no. Um, so my father, uh, who, you know, grew up in the sort of in the 50s and 60s and 70s and um, was reading Downbeat magazine at that time, used to tell me about a lot of his favorite jazz musicians. Uh, Tony Williams, Art Blakey, Jack DeJohnette, and of course, Elvin Jones, uh, who is more widely known for playing the John Coltrane Quartet um, on albums like Love Supreme, but, um, you know, was just an incredible band leader and one of the main innovators of jazz drumming um, in his generation and has had, you know, just an incredible influence on successive generations since. Uh, my father took me to see Elvin play when I was about 12 years old or so at the regatta bar in Cambridge. And it was just an absolutely life-changing experience sitting next to a drummer. We got wound up getting a table right in front of the, uh, the drum kit. Um, and I got to meet Elvin uh, during one of the breaks where my father encouraged me, he said, he's, he's sitting right there, you're taking, I have my little acid watch, like jean jacket on with all my band patches, all my like Slayer and Aussie pass, patches and stuff like that. And a, and a little Sharpie. And I went up and, and shook his hand. And like many other people have told, you know, you, you shake Elvin's hand and your, your palm is just enveloped by his, his massive uh, hand, which was incredible. Wow. And he was just so sweet and present and, sort of spun me around. He said, let's see if we got any room on the back. And he, he signed his big uh, signature right across my shoulder blades. And that actually is how I then um, would sign for people sort of in his honor uh, on Dresden Dolls tours later on and things like that as a, a nod to my hero. But the main thing was um, being that close to a drummer who just exuded so much passion and so much joy when they played in such an incredible level of artistry that when I later moved to Boston in my early 20s, every year that Elvin would come to the Regatta Bar, I'd buy as, I'd save up and buy as many tickets as I could and go to as many of the five nights uh, and, you know, and hopefully meet him or just sit back and in, after his incredible sets with the jazz machine, uh, watch him interact with fans. And that was as if not more informative in a way in how to, just interact with people that are sharing their appreciation for your music. He was just so genuine and gave the biggest, warmest smile. Um, and so it was that combination of his humanity and his incredible artistry that made the biggest impression on me. Wow. I didn't know the part about you saving money to buy tickets to as many of the residency shows as possible. That's amazing. Well, yeah, it's one of those things that I think everybody there, anybody who's a fan, you know, when you have that moment of recognition where you go like, this is an incredibly special thing that I'm able to bear witness to, you you want to soak it up as much as possible. I mean, it's literally, it's a combination of like going to school and going to church and going to like the most amazing masterclass <laughs> you could possibly conceive of. So very yeah. happy to see Owen multiple times. And I know this happens naturally to so many musicians and, and industry folks, but like you really, you know, like got an education in this stuff. You know, like whether you realize it or not, I mean, you were going there to experience it, to enjoy it, but to see Elvin and then all your band patches, you know, I, I talk about you a lot and, um, what a phenomenal drummer you are. And I'm sure you've heard me say this before, but I, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say like, 
Brian's influences are jazz and metal. So he hits very hard, but with <laughs> precision. And um, I don't know if you, I doubt you've thought about this and I'm just remembering it now, but um, we lived in a house together when I was a senior in college with like a whole bunch of people. And I remember saying to you, I don't know how this came up and I knew a ton about music. I mean, you knew that, but I remember saying to you like, I don't really know much about metal. And you were like, let me educate you. And you busted out like VHS tapes of, you know, MTV videos you've recorded. So this isn't really a question. It's more common. It's like you really put the work in and educating yourself, even though I'm sure it was like pure pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny to think back on those sort of formative years where every day after school, you know, kids have their various activities that they get up to. But one of the common things around my house was music. And my friends would either come back and we would, you know, dive bomb straight for, you know, the, uh, the attic bedroom where all the instruments were set up. And I was the, you know, the guy with the drum kit. So all the guitar amps and guitars were left at my house. And I sort of just by proxy learned to, uh, play bass and guitar and had those instruments around. And, you know, as we're trying to learn cover songs and, uh, you know, write our own, you know, uh, little bizarro tunes and stuff like that. Um, and then in addition to that, like collecting all of the, um, home videos that bands would release, which was a really, you know, in this day of Netflix, you know, we see a lot of documentaries and very like well-produced things about like, here's, you know, the, the, the sort of expose on this particular artist's life. And uh, while I was growing up, there was um, the phenomenon of the sort of band self-released um, raw edited kind of like, here's our collection of videos and some, you know, you know, comp together interviews and stuff like that, but a lot of behind the scenes things. And I remember um, videos like Aerosmith's The Making of Pump or A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica or all of the Pantera home videos and on and on and on, the, the Aussie documentaries and and certainly a lot of the, the jazz um, instructional drumming tapes or biographies too. My dad, when I was 12 years old, bought me um, a video of Elvin Jones, a different drummer, which was like a 29 minute documentary on him that was made in 79, but it's become like this classic, you know, archival piece of footage of him and his life and his music and the way he approached things. And then let alone all the, the punk videos too, another state of mind and minor threat and dead Kennedys and bad brains and black flag and all of those bands uh, that would share, here's a piece of our world with you, the listener and the viewer. And like, this is what's going on. And so it was not just for entertainment value, but like, say for example, with the uh, Aerosmith and Metallica videos, I could sit back and go like, oh, that's Bruce Fairburn. He's the producer. This is the engineer. This is what Bob Rock is doing. This is kind of like what everybody's station is and their role in the recording process. And then also, you know, in the touring process too. And for all of the, you know, craziness and wild partying and stuff like that, that wasn't so much the thing that made the impression on me, but more the general sort of atmosphere and what's the kind of flow that you can get into. And it's really like you take the parts that are applicable to you and, you know, leave the rest. So I think it's, it's healthy. And of course, reading all the different books and biographies. One of the things that helped give me a framework as I was growing up in this little teeny town in Southern New Hampshire, where, you know, being some kind of international rock star was like the furthest thing from most people's uh, imaginations or aspirations was like, here are firsthand stories from all these people who have done it. And through that, you can kind of begin to weave a narrative or at least some kind of blueprint that you can then project your own life onto. And I found that really helpful. 
the combination. It's not just like, well, this is how that person did it. So I'm going to do it the same way. It's kind of like the cumulative effect of hearing all these people's stories who struck out on their own, carved their own path. And then you find the things that are meaningful to you within that and build your path forward from there. I love that. And, um, huge advantage to being a drummer that I never thought about. People leave their gear where the drum, where the drum <laughs> kit is. So then you can start like learning guitar and, and taking advantage of that. Yeah. And I, I, I think that was just like a, a natural byproduct of my own curiosity too. I wanted to figure out how to play all these different cover songs. And so, you know, that just naturally led me and also, you know, not having like a video game console around the house or, you know, anything else much to do that became a really good focus that became my source of entertainment and growing and uh i remember having to sort of do battle with my hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My mother or other family members at times who were like, we're just so worried about like the negative influence of all this stuff. Like this is, you know, late 80s and early 90s when there was a lot of articles floating around about like, you know, the, the corrupting influence of rock and roll on this generation and blah, 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 and all that kind of thing. And having to go like, I'm not in it for that. This is why I'm into it. The music is touching my soul, and that's what I want to bring to society, if at all possible. And right. um, and so, and it became sort of a validating experience later on. Once you know, bands of mine were starting to get out there, uh, all the family kind of sat back and went, "Ah, oh, now we get it." Right. Exactly. So, what prompted the move from um, your small town in New Hampshire to Boston, and and how old were you? I was about uh, 19 or 20 when I started making my first forays into Boston. It basically was just opportunity. I had to look at the most viable big city close to me. And that's, you know, where my friends and I would go to shows and, you know, um, the, the sort of the hub of like regional music culture was for me. Um, it was only about an hour and a half or hour and 15 minutes from my, my house. So it was a pretty quick drive. And when I was 19, I would commute three times a week to go play and like a crust punk band um, in my friend's uh, basement. Man, we actually did some gigs. And so that was like a, a good first um, foray into the city and doing shows in the Boston area. Uh, but when I was looking to get um, something a bit more serious together, and I, I, and I have to be honest too, I was in a relationship when I was 19 uh, with a girl who was older than me and she had a child of her own and she was kind of putting the pressure on to really like lock down and like make family life the main thing. And I realized I was only 19 and this was a bit too much. And I decided personally that for me, I had to really just make the break or, you know, forever deal with the consequences of not pursuing what I knew I wanted to do. And I have to give major credit to the, the encouragement through the books of Henry Rollins and, and books like Get in the Van, uh, where that first chapter where he talks about sort of, you know, against all odds, you sort of throw caution to the wind and go like, I can't pass up this opportunity. I'm going to go for what I want to do. And I made the choice to move to Boston. I had auditioned for a band. Um, a guy named Jason had a group there. And I went down and auditioned for his group and basically told him, I said, this is my situation. I want to do this. I'm ready to fully commit. 
And he said, all right, let's go. And so I wound up moving to Boston, I think around, uh, it was July 29th, 1999. And I remember that first night kind of like relaxing back onto my little like collection of blankets on the guest bedroom floor going like, I'm free, let it begin. And, uh, and that was really the uh, beginning of my journey there. Incredible. So I've heard the story uh, um, of, you know, you seeing Amanda play for the first time, but um, maybe people outside of the Dresden Dolls community um, have not. So tell us about that experience and how the Dresden Dolls came together. That was a very magical time. And I think one of these things that sometimes in life manifests through just the sheer persistence of following what it is that you really want to do, finding the things that are really important to you, and then keeping your eyes open enough so that when those situations present themselves, you are prepared and you have hopefully within you the the courage to move on them. And I saw Amanda Palmer play at um, a Halloween party at her house that a mutual friend had invited me to. And it was one of those like mind sharing epiphany moments that, you know, people talk about um, where I was watching this young woman play and bash out some of the most intriguing, interesting, uh, passionate uh, music and original sounding uh, piano music for sure that I'd ever heard. And I just very kind of coolly, calmly later went up to her and said, I really loved your music music. I'm a drummer. I'd love to play with you. And she said, great, I'm looking for a drummer. And about a week later, we got together and it was just, you know, instant chemistry. I, we both, it was kind of like that awkward blind date thing. I had sort of gone down and prepared the rehearsal space and she was about an hour and a half late and I jumped on my skateboard and hustled down to her place in the South End. And she was just then pulling up with her friend. And I said, Hey, we, uh, we were getting it together in a rehearsal. Do you still want to do that? And she went, Oh yeah. Hang on. Let me go get my keyboard. And I was like, great. So, you know, a a fortunate, uh, a near miss there, but, um, we knocked it out of the park, fortunately. And, um, we both sat down on our instruments a little bit later on and, you know, it was that awkward first date kind of thing where it's like, so, uh, yeah. So, and I've just said, you know, play me, play me whatever you've been working on. I'll just, I'll follow along. So, and she started playing the intro riff to the song sex changes. And I just, kind of tuned in and started playing like a drum cadence along with that. She stopped about 10 or 15 seconds into it. She kind of looked up at this sort of kind of quiet pause. And I was like, is that, is that cool? Like, is, is that right? What I'm, what I'm doing? And she sort of nodded and said, yeah, I can tell this is going to be good. And it was just like, from then on, the night was a bit of a blur of just sort of like jumping up and down and rejoicing. And we left that night kind of going like, we should be a band. Let's, we're a band. Let's be a band. Hooray, we're a band. And uh, it was just one of those undeniable things where you feel like when you really find somebody that you click so deeply, deeply with, and we yeah. realized how special that was. So from there, and this is funny because last year, I'll just say briefly that during quarantine, I went into my old archive of cassette tapes from our early um, rehearsals and found rehearsal tapes as early as December, 2000, literally just like a matter of like two or three weeks um, since we really had first down. Cause I think we sat down at that, that first week of November Um, Mm -hmm. and we just immediately began working and writing together, but it would rather than it be a sort of a casual thing, we just set the drums and piano up facing each other in her room and would just improvise together and jam and rather than just kind of like sort of slosh away over some musical idea it was really about focusing in on what we were playing and that i think is what began to make the dresden dolls have a very distinctive thing from 
uh, maybe some of the other bands that just, you know, sort of write a song together. We, we really worked on this sort of element of spontaneity and listening uh, to each other. And very soon after we played our first show. And, you know, there's there's a theme throughout here, whether it's, you know, deciding to move to Boston or, you know, not just going to that party, but then the person, then Amanda doesn't show up and, and you skateboard down there. Like you made this stuff happen by putting yourself out there, you know? So I think that's a huge lesson and reminder for everyone. You weren't like sitting at home, like, you know, waiting for a break or something, right? Like you put yourself out there in the scene, which is really important. Again, not really a question, just a comment. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a huge, important thing for all of us out there to remember that you have to, it's not about sort of, I don't want to cheapen and just say like, it's about the hustle. Like, yes, hustling is good. It's good to be like on your game, know what you're talking about, stay engaged. But it is really truly about putting yourself in situations and having the persistence. It's very easy that after maybe a, you know several times of things not working out, you have to push through and keep your eyes on what it is that you're really seeking without pushing so hard that you push it away from yourself. It's about making yourself available while also keeping yourself you know, engaged in the kinds of activities and around the kind of people and things that you want to do. That was a huge lesson. And that's actually exactly my father's words too. He would always say, just remember, just keep putting yourself out there. Keep learning, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open and stay in practice and make yourself available and show up. And when it's time for you to show up, do your very best. Exactly. And like you are a perfect example of preparation meeting opportunity, you know, like putting yourself out there is the opportunity, but you prepared, even though it was fun with all that self-education and, and passion. And um, we were fortunate to have Justin Vernon from Bon Iver on this podcast. And he was talking about um, when he was growing up, like like him, and I feel like you're the same way, him and his friends, quote unquote, studied music, not formally, but because they loved it, you know, I, I forgot specifically how he phrased it, but it was just like, um, I, and I know you were the same way with like Casey and Dave and everyone up in New Hampshire. So it's not like you moved to Boston, you were putting yourself out there and you didn't know what you were doing. Like you would put the work in and that, I mean, otherwise Amanda wouldn't have responded like that, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and those things just, you know, again, from the perspective of trying to understand well, what is my actual role as a drummer? Right. And, le- and learning those things going like, how can I be the most um, effective in my position? And also, you know, and, and it's also too about kind of just letting your, um, your, your curiosity be your guide. Right. Just follow that particular muse as well. When I was younger and listening to records, obviously it was great to hear these songs, you know, the very first time you hear, you know, Pink Floyd or Black Sabbath or Radiohead or whatever, you know, it's going to be, and you hear that album. Um, as a casual listener, one of the things that my friends and I, or I can at least speak for myself too, is kind of listening to the production elements too. How are the, what are the drums doing? How are they interacting with all the other instruments and particularly the vocalist and what's going on in terms of effects? You know, how are things being spaced? And, you know, um, I can even say one album uh, that made an impression on me was, is this desire uh, by PJ Harvey? Uh, which I think pretty- of you every time I listen to her, but keep going. Right? Yeah. Well, so, and and, and Flood is a, a favorite producer of mine too, but um, the way that space is used in that record, um, 
is, is particularly fascinating to me. So again, just like thinking about the way components all work together to achieve the greater whole, um, that wound up being a very, you know, useful way of listening to music that I was then able to apply through, you know, recording sessions and uh, live context with other bands and things like that. Absolutely. So um, even though it's literally legendary in the music industry, we're not going to get too much into like how the Dresden Dolls developed and, um, you know, you guys started a band, started locally, grew from there. We, You and I actually, well, that's covered many places, but you and I covered that pretty in depth actually on my first podcast, Interning 101, which I very rarely have referenced on this podcast. So if you want to deep dive on that, there's a lot to learn. But in short, you know, you guys were a local band. Um, you know, grew from there. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to 2005 um, when we had the privilege of touring with Nine Inch Nails. Because um, what I'm what I'm leading in towards is um, you have played on a Nine Inch Nails record. So tell us how that experience came together. That was really exciting. Um, that sort of materialized out of the fact that the Dresden Dolls were invited to play 31 shows with Nine Inch Nails in 2005 on their tour. Um, that was kind of their warm-up tour in theaters for what they eventually went on to do in arenas um, for the album with Teeth. And, you know, it started, I remember when we got the announcement, I think we were somewhere in Australia, I believe, or, or New Zealand. And it was like, hey, guess who just, you know, <laughs> requested the Dresden Dolls to be uh, on their opening uh, tour. And we thought, why us? This is crazy. We're going to get absolutely murdered. And we went to the Astoria in London and did two shows and uh, on the second night, we sort of said, uh, could we request a, uh, an audience with Mr. Reznor, please? And he came backstage and we said, thank you so much for having us on this tour. This is really exciting. Why the hell are we here? Why us? And Trent Reznor well, so said... Sorry to interrupt this beautiful moment. Let's just define the Dresden Dolls, even though we kind of have. The Dresden Dolls are a keyboard drum duo described as punk, uh, Brechtian punk cabaret. Correct. So sort of well outside the uh, kind of traditional um, industrial rock that maybe we would expect. Obviously, bands like Rasputina have opened for Nine Inch Nails, etc. But we were sort of curious as to what he found um, intriguing, if anything, about the band. And he said, I saw the video for Girl Anachronism on MTV, and I didn't know if I loved it or hated it, but I knew it had something. And I'm very happy to have you guys here. And we just said, thank you so much and figured, well, you know, there's no time like the present and we better really raise the bar. And that was an incredibly useful tour because it took us out of the kind of soft and squishy comfort of just doing like headline show after headline show and, and having that um, ease with our own audience to just being a finely tuned war machine every night that we went out with like, you know, 40 short minutes to when even that was, we were grateful to have that much time. Um, and we just went out for blood every single night. And I guess, that was something that made an impression, like show up when you have the opportunity, give it everything you have. And we would give everything on our, you know, regular shows anyway, but to be in that context in front of a whole new potentially and sometimes hostile crowd, although I have to say the Nine Inch Nails crowd was incredibly open-minded for the Dresden Dolls. They were. Um, that made us step up our game and yeah, the, the level of focus was really beneficial. And that was actually something that we then brought into the studio on Yes, Virginia, our, our follow-up record. But um, I would, I guess, in the, so we have a song called Half Jack, which there's kind of like an open 
sort of not drum solo. I'm, I'm kind of playing along with Amanda, but it's a big drum build up to the intro of the song. And oftentimes I would incorporate uh, beats from Nine Inch Nails songs like Eraser or, you know, March of the Pigs or things like that, just as kind of, you know, little tip of the hat, you know, quotes and thank you to our, uh, our kind host. Um, and at one point in the tour, one of the roadies, uh, Trevor came up to me and said, I don't know if you realize this, but Trent is like watching your set, but he's watching you, man, just to let you know, like, good job. Keep no big deal. So yeah. And, uh, and I was like, Oh my God. Okay. Well, this is great. And nothing. Yeah. I had an absolutely no expectation, yeah. but, um, the following September, 2006, I got an email, uh, saying that his management was looking for my contact information. Nothing came of that. And then the following year, 2007, uh, I think in September, I got an email from Trent himself that said, Hey, hope all is well. Just want to get in touch. I'm making a record, uh, this December with Adrian Blue and Atticus and Alan Mulder. Um, it's kind of an experimental thing. Would love to fly you out and just kind of, you know, mess around and see what happens. And I was like, this is incredible. And further conversations led to him basically saying, I want to kind of experiment with developing these soundscapes and see if I could write like a musical suite and sections that would be able to be components I could move around during the live show. And, I, and that's what became the very first uh, Ghost Volumes 1 through 4 record. So um, I flew out and again, was just blown away by the amount of freedom on that session. I He basically... Um, spent uh, Friday evening with me just kind of chatting me up and answering a few questions that I had. And, uh, and um, it was interesting to ask him saying, like, what is it particularly that you would like for me to bring to this particular experience? And uh, you play with so many phenomenal drummers, Chris Brenna and Josh Fries and Dave Grohl and all these different people that have played along the way. Um, and it was really fascinating to hear his perspectives of like the, the, the upsides and the downsides of each of those particularly incredibly talented drummers. Um, so that gave me a bit of a context as well for what he was looking for. The following day, he said, well, I thought a fun art project would be to have you build a drum kit out of whatever found materials you have. I'll be in that room mixing. Have at it, kid. So I was like, okay. He said, and tonight we'll, we'll improvise. We'll give some headphones and a template and we'll see what happens. So that's exactly what we did. And I built up this crazy kind of trash drum kit. There's a video of that on YouTube, um, and also various pictures floating around the internet. And, um, I basically just kind of culled materials from around his apartment where he, not his apartment, his house, where he was doing um, a bit of remodeling. And so there was huge, you know, 50 gallon galvanized trash cans and all sorts of like boards and metal and weird things and plastic jugs and whatever. And uh, that evening they said, okay, it's go time. We're going to give you a tempo, um, play whatever comes into your head. And I thought that's an incredible amount of artistic wow. car blanche to have. And yeah. he said, you know, he said, try not, he said, quote, try not to make it sound like hippie drum circle, but basically go in there and do what you think. So here was, I basically, with this invitation that had been presented several months before, I didn't get any further context. He didn't say, we're going to audition you for this, blah, 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 learn these songs. What I tried to do was listening through the Nine Inch Nails catalog, in particular material from the Downward Spiral and, um, the album sort of surrounding that um, and to get a sense of what was turning him on uh, rhythmically. And I realized that he had this almost kind of like kind of Prince like funk element to a mm. lot of his, like there's like a very deep kind of sexy groove to a lot of the nine inch nails material, not necessarily just the straight ahead pounding industrial sure. kind of things. So I just thought to myself, that's what I'll try to get into the headspace rhythmically when I go into this session. And he seemed to love it. So I laid down the first you know, couple minutes of the of the improvised drum part. I went back in the control room. He said, great sounds, great beats, go do some more. 
So I went back in the room, did another few minutes of playing. He said, awesome, that's perfect for tonight. We'll pick it up. We'll start mixing tomorrow. And the long story short, that album came out. It was like a huge landmark album for them in terms of the packaging and uh, was nominated for Grammy and all these kinds of things like that. So that was an incredible uh, experience to be a part of. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely. Um, so jumping around a little bit, um, tell us how playing with uh, World Inferno came together, because that was obviously a really important <laughs> band, you know, for the Dresden Dolls in the early days, because you guys used to open for them and then you started drumming with them. Yeah, absolutely. So World Inferno were our real uh, sort of compatriots when we were feeling a little adrift out in the world, like we were this kind of weird band with no other musical family. Uh, and I remember the the day sitting at Amanda's desk and she said, we need to find some other bands from New York that we can do some shows with mm. and start, you know, traveling a little bit. And so she, I think she typed into, um, you know, the little search engine, like the web crawler search engine right. or something like that. That was like, you know, cabaret rock band or cabaret punk band NYC. Sure. And right away, World Inferno's website popped up. And, we and just... started up World Inferno Friendship Society, for those who don't know. Yes, the World Inferno Friendships, the mighty World Inferno Friendship Society. Yeah. And um, and we saw this insane um, sort of, you know, splash page photo of like 11 people all standing there, looked like they were gangsters from, you know, 1940, ready to just like commit musical mayhem. <laughs> and uh, we wound up setting up a show, became good friends, and... Then it was in April of 2008 when I received a text message from the wonderful and late Jack Terrycloth saying, hey, Vig, want a gig? Lots of work. No money. Call me. Cloth. <laughs> and so I thought, that's perfect. This is exactly the kind of like, you know, crazy nonsense I'm looking to get into and, uh, you know, just love those guys and that music. And musically, drumming wise, that was a really good challenge for me. It was way different than what I was doing in the Dresden Dolls going from playing in a two piece to playing with a nine piece. Um, so that was really exciting. And we did loads of tours. Those guys toured extensively all throughout Europe. We did an amazing uh, musical theater show um, called um, Addicted to Bad Ideas, Peter Laurie's 20th Century, which is loosely based on uh, his life and uh, played that in, you know, several different countries. And, um, Again, it was just, you know, amazing. Those guys would throw a huge Halloween ball every year as kind of their, their sort of annual band New Year's celebration in a way. Um, and those are all on YouTube too. But uh, again, just a, a really incredible experience. I love that. You know, how did you balance, because Dresden Dolls were active then, I believe. So how did you balance that? Like, how did you approach that? Because, you know, it's, if we haven't made this clear, like the Dresden Dolls is your band with Amanda. You are not a hired gun or a session musician or anything like that. So how did you balance your full-time responsibilities <laughs> with the Dolls by saying like, hey, I actually want to go do some drumming with um, a band we used to open for? Well, that was actually during um, kind of a, a self-imposed hiatus at that okay. time. So um, at the sort of around um, January or so of 2008, things were just beginning to kind of wind down with Dresden Dolls. Right. After um, we did the Onion Cellar play um, at Harvard in 2007 in January when that wrapped, I met with Amanda and I said things had become increasingly um, I think, uh, difficult interpersonally and professionally. It just seemed like everybody needed to take one giant step back to preserve sure. the life and working relationship of the band. And so I decided at that point 
to, and to say like, I want to take like six months to a year off. I think we have earned a rest. We have been going crazy for the past six years. Everybody is kind of losing their minds and it's we're, we have well reached the point of diminishing returns. It is time to step back. That's what every smart person does. And so um, we did begin to kind of just disentangle ourselves from the like the whirlwind activity that had led us through the past six years. We did the True Colors tour with Cindy Lauper uh, that summer of 2007. Uh, then we kind of talked about taking a big step back from uh, doing the band full time. We decided to release our third album, No Virginia. We did a very uh, short recording session in January of 2008, released um, yes, for, uh, sorry, No Virginia um, that May. And that was right as the time that I was joining World Inferno and, and kind of getting things off the ground. So I actually, when we did, um, I think about two weeks of touring for Dresden Dolls in May, I think that was when we toured with the band Smoosh, now called Chaos Chaos. Oh, yeah. Um, right? Those were uh, wonderful, fun days. Um, I was actually working very hard on that Dolls tour with getting World Inferno set up and with management and booking and oh, yeah. websites and all that kind of stuff. It's so all I, coming back to me now. Keep going. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what it was. So I actually was working concurrently. I was on the road actually up in kind of Northern California, I think, when we were getting started. Um, I think it was in San Francisco, I believe around there. And I was doing um, a lot of work emails with World Inferno, like sending out things to managers and booking agents and, and getting that band kind of prepped as Amanda was also getting prepped to release her uh, first solo record as well. Um, so it was a relatively smooth transition in that way. Right. And also I loved how you described World Inferno, I believe as musical mayhem. So if musical <laughs> mayhem sounds Sounds good to listeners. Definitely look them up on YouTube and check out their incredible music. Yes. And for an even slightly more beguiling and specific reference, the World Inferno Friendship Society is kind of like the Count Basie Orchestra meets the Clash meets the Pogues. Um, meets like your uh, runaway and, you know, join the circus childhood dream. That is. Yes, absolutely. So how did you end up playing in Violent Femmes, one of your favorite bands growing up, one of my favorite <laughs> bands growing up? That's incredible. Yes, Violent Femmes, that was another thing that was a byproduct of just, like you say, being out there. And I actually have you to thank, Emily White, uh, because I think we were in, was it San Jose, I believe? Yes. California, uh, at a radio show. And the Dresden Dolls were booked to play, as were the Violent Femmes, who were the headliner. And you very kindly went up to their tour manager, Darren Brown, at the time and said, would it be okay if Brian and Amanda joined the Violent Femmes on stage for like a song? And they were like, really? I can't believe I'm that bold. You're so bold. Ladies and gentlemen, let's take a moment to celebrate the boldness of Emily White, your kind, Thank gentle you. host. I can't that you were just like, I want to meet you. Or something. I'm just like, hey, can they play with you on stage? <laughs> As they say, ladies and gentlemen, fortune favors the bold. Fear not, dear listener. Go forth into the world with your wildest dreams and exactly. don't fear pursuing them. Emily White had the had the gall and the tenacity and the and the sweet Midwestern presence to go up and say, would it be okay if this happened? And they were like, we totally don't care. That's fine. We do it all the time. It's great. So the Dresden Dolls made our way up on stage and I was sitting there just ear to ear grinning and it was not the kind of thing where like we played one song and they kind of gave this look like all right you two guys get the hell out of here i remember staying on stage with them for like six or seven songs and just kept playing along even through the songs that i didn't know and varuni who is brian ritchie's wife uh, told me later she said do you remember that at that show you asked if you could join the band 
And I said, no. You guys are both pretty bold, but keep <laughs> I must have just been rushing off pure adrenaline because I was just totally. glowing from that kind of excitement. Anybody out there knows who's like had that moment where they get on stage with a band that they've, you know, loved since they were a kid, you know, the kind of just elation that takes you over and you just don't think quite clearly. But apparently that's what I said. And it was a, uh, it was a uh, funny because it foretold the future. And, um, it was in 2012, I believe in January when Amanda and I went down to do our tour in Australia and Brian Ritchie curates the Monofoma festival in Hobart, Tasmania, which we were booked to play. We were about a week out before playing that festival in Perth on a day off. And Amanda got a text message on her phone from Brian Ritchie that said, we had a cancellation. Do you guys have any great ideas? for one of the uh, festival headline slot. And she looked at me and she said, oh, should we ask Brian Ritchie if we could do the first Violent Femmes record with him? And I was like, hell yeah, of course. We like, well, we had even covered Add It Up at our very first um, CD release show in 2003. And so oh, she, said, she said that, Brian said, well, that sounds great, we'll do it. And we then had the temerity to go to PJ Harvey's. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. ...show she was also on tour, and um, Amanda had known Mick Harvey, so we went backstage, told them about the idea, and Mick Harvey and John Parrish... Uh, were playing in her band at the time, said, yes, we would love to do the guitar parts. Great. So we got one little thing together, one uh, rehearsal, did that show. Brian Ritchie seemed very pleased. And then fast forward about a year and four months later, I got an email from Brian Ritchie in May of 2013, after I did a long sort of tour of duty over musically over in, uh, in uh, Germany at a theater. And Brian Ritchie out of the blue said, hey, I have a recording session coming up in New York uh, with Gordon, we're going to redo some of these femme songs um, for a new licensing deal that Gordon's been working on. Would you be available? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Things went incredibly well at that uh, recording session. Um, and again, this pertains to the things that we were talking about. I tried to make sure I was prepared. I showed up, had a good attitude and just kind of laid back, but spoke up when I felt it was important. And, uh, and that actually, I think, had a positive effect in one particular instance when we were working on a mix. And at that uh, end of that day, they kind of sort of sheepishly kind of like scuffing their shoes in the dirt kind of were like, we're like, so um, do you want to like join the band or whatever? And I was like, yes, are you kidding me? Yes, I would love to join Violent Femmes. Thank you. That's. Uh... I mean, I'm really sorry to interrupt this amazing story, but I feel like <laughs> even how that was asked was like a, a Violent Femmes lyric. It's just like yeah. forever, just like awkward teenage boy. <laughs> totally, yes, it was total like awkward teenage boy being like, so I um, don't um, Will you go out with me? Uh, I totally agree. It's cool. It's like you don't want to play. Like, just like, <laughs> like, whatever. It's cool. And I was like, yes, I love you both. I, blah, blah, blah. Um, that, again, was a very interesting story, too, because that was going into the world of guys that had, had a big, long history of um, just lots of life, lots of things, you know, hopefully under the bridge, but many things that had not quite passed through under the bridge. Um, relating to communication. And I was really happy to be a, a part of getting those guys to be able to, you know, look at things from a slightly different and updated perspective. 
Uh, because one of the things we all can do is go, well, I know I'm not going to do this again because last time it was absolutely traumatic. Um, and that can be a real hindrance for all of us moving forward in life. And one of the things that I'm very proud of Brian and Gordon for doing <clears throat> is having the, the willingness to work with each other, even through some of those really intense like business discussions and creative discussions that are oftentimes the germ of a, of a thing that rips a band apart and makes it difficult for people to work mm-hmm. together. So um, that wound up being, I think, a very, I decided to leave the band in early 2016 for, for personal reasons, but, um, but I was very happy to see that they were able to continue on and release music and, and basically got back together and, and wound up having a great time doing their band, which so many zillions of people around the world were excited to see play and put out new music. Yeah. And um, also at that San Jose radio gig, did you sit in and play the washboard, if I remember correctly? I didn't there. That was at Lollapalooza in 2007 when we joined them. That was another fun moment. No, I had my, my snare drum. I will send you a picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually making notes of pictures I want to share when we share this episode. <laughs> awesome. I love it. I'll send you a plethora of pictures. Thank you. And also I should clarify, I was going to mention this in the show notes. I mean, people that have listened to this podcast know that I worked in intimately with you and your band. Um, so if that's not, if you're just listening to this episode only, I want to say that because that's why um, we're very familiar <laughs> with a lot of these things. Gentle listener, I would like to interject on my own right now and say that the Dresden Dolls would be nothing without the stupendous, incredible work of Emily White. A round of applause because... As people will hear, have heard in that first podcast that we did together, the work that you did alongside with us and the incredible support as part of our team was a massive, massive boon to the band and what we were able to do because it's impossible to do this alone. And my message out there is go find your Emily White. Find that person that is passionate about what they do, informed about the way that they go about their work and decisions they make. And nurture those kinds of relationships we need to have each other to do this together and emily white i owe you an internal debt of gratitude thank you for all of that thank you and you're gonna make me cry um two quick things on that one um you would but like it wouldn't have worked if you guys weren't amazing you know and we're gonna talk about that like that's what chapter one of the book is like get your art together it's like who cares about all this other stuff if you haven't it, like put your heart and soul into the music, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You got to find out why you're doing what you're doing yes. and then, and then sculpt your path according to that. And absolutely. You have to make sure that the music and the performance is a number one, because that's your calling card. That's what you're representing yourself with. Um, and having a good, strong work ethic and, and discipline about that is incredibly important. And having the team members that share that. That's right. And I also want to add, I, I talk about this a lot. I don't know if I've talked about, about this on this podcast, but I was 20 when I met you guys. So, you know, I think a lot of times people are looking for, I'm getting, I'm completely projecting and stereotyping, but like the old white guy on the 50th floor that's going to mm-hmm. change their life or whatever. Like if you meet a motivated younger person and they're on a professional path, like I, I would tell people like I grew up professionally with you guys, you know, yes. and that benefited us both. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. It's about finding people that are committed 
yes. to, to, the, to the larger goal. And you have a personal investment too. And that's different than somebody who might be more of like a, like a hanger on type, somebody that may have different motivations for being around a particular artist or a band. Sometimes people just love the fun and excitement of being around performers and around live gigs and in that kind of environment too, but they don't necessarily have like a personal stake in the whole outcome. Mm-hmm. And you certainly did all the learning and growing that you had set for yourself. We were able to be a vehicle for that as the kind of, you know, career trajectory that we were aiming to set. You were helping us achieve that. And it was like this, again, it's really about having that team and those components. And it's, it bears some thought, I think for everybody, uh, because especially in this day of social media, when like the main message is like, you want to get numbers, you want to get followers, you want to get this, 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 and this, it's so, it can tie an artist's head in knots about where to actually focus their attention. And I think oftentimes Mm -hmm. whether or not how much people sort of, you know, believe in this or feel it's about this sort of phenomenon of the, the gatekeepers out there, um, a lot of times artists can feel that their work is just all for naught. Like I'm putting in all this time, like where's it going? It's just going into the void. But oftentimes it's, it's like, don't worry about that. That's a wonderful large goal to have. If you want to like really see your dreams through to the end, but focus on every step of the way, making it a quality bit of output of what you're doing, whether it's the photos or the music or the gig or the songwriting give your best to that particular instance and let that be the inertia that you gain rather than chasing the fame or chasing the followers and the numbers and that kind of thing. That's right. And you hit on something really important that I talk a lot when I'm talking about uh, management. Um, So like I introduced myself to Amanda. um, I think you were dealing with gear at (laughs) at the (laughs) show at my university. Um, So Amanda was at the merch table And she told me, so I said, um, you know, I'm studying music business. I intern at the radio station. I write for a local music magazine. Let me know if you ever need help with anything. And she said, can you come over tomorrow? But (laughs) she she told me, um, you know, I don't know, months or years later that, of course, you guys had had offers of help from fans before. And I was a fan. But she said from that first moment, I made it clear that I was on a professional path. So I think that's really important. Like if if there's a young person or any age person in your life that really wants to help you out as, as a musician, if they are interested in the music industry and interested in a professional path, do that. When they are just obsessed with you, um, to me, that not even to me, that's a sycophant. Right. And it's it's really I've seen this happen with a not just a variety of artists, but even in sports stuff. Like um, it's it's hard for talent to notice the sycophant because talent is working their butt off, right? And right. someone shows up and is like, I'm obsessed with you and I want to work for you 24-7 and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, oh, who wouldn't turn that down? But now I have the example because so many people have seen the film Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. And so Queen is, you know, blowing up, getting big. They have their manager. But then Freddie had that lover who was... um I think he worked at the recording studio. I wasn't sure if he was from the label or the recording studio and starts whispering in Freddie's ear, you should go solo. You don't need them. And then there's this like manipulation. Um, and then suddenly Freddie's alone and realizes all he has is a sycophant. So what I'm saying is like, cause, cause I see kids, you know, I see college students that are like 20 years old and um, they're like, Oh, I really want to, 
manage, you know, manage my classmate or whatever, but I don't think I have enough experience. I'm like, neither of you have enough experience. Go just throw yourself at the wolves and go learn and grow together on that professional path. And that's different than just like, I'm obsessed with you. And I think I said this before, but obviously I was a Dresden Dolls fan, but I was on a professional path. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and that's an important thing to distinguish. You had a personal stake in it, which is great. Yes. So what else can I answer for you? Yes. So you are living in Los Angeles. What are you up to now? I am living in Los Angeles and uh, loving it far more than I ever anticipated. Um, That has been rife with all kinds of musical opportunities out here. Um, I wound up much to my surprise because I I really didn't have a lot of context when I uh, first moved out here. I wound up in six different projects in about the first six months of being here, which was incredibly exciting. And I'm proud to say that there's like a very generous uh, and loving community um, that stays very active with all kinds of sorts of uh, various activities, all different kinds of recording projects and collaborations. And, um, you know, even through all the crazy shutdown of clubs, uh, with COVID and stuff like that, I've actually managed to, to stay pretty busy too. So my, I have coaxed my good friend, Adam Silvestri from the band Radiator King to move out this way. And we just had our first show at the Troubadour, uh, a week ago. That was incredibly exciting. Um, my dear friend, Alex Burke, um, who is a band called Magnolia Memoir, uh, is just always involved in all manner of um, various recording projects. He's currently now working on a toy uh, product, which is kind of like a combination of like a chaos pad meets the Nintendo Power Glove with this toy developer. Uh, That's kind of like a sequencing um, sort sort of like apparatus that you can hold and build tracks and sort of sequence music with. Uh, so he just had me in to lay down some uh, drum uh, tracks and samples for that. Um, so a whole manner of different things. I love it. Yeah. Um, and, and you're warm. And I'm warm relatively, although I have to completely confess I have turned into the most gigantic temperature wimp. This is like a guy who grew up in sub-zero freezing weather, getting up to shovel and scrape ice off his car at six in the morning in like the bowels of winter in New Hampshire. And now when it dips below 71 degrees, I'm like, I get that. (laughs) Weather is relative. It's horrifying. Yes. What have I become? Anyway. I'm also, actually, I know this is like not what we're supposed to be talking about, but like, I'm always cold in Los Angeles because you expect it to be warm, but then at <laughs> night, like it's the desert. It gets cold there. It gets down to the forties at night too, you know, so yeah. it doesn't feel too bad, but, um, but no, other than that, absolutely lovely out here. And, um, yeah, I've encouraged many people to at least come and visit, if not move. Yes. It's warm <laughs> during the days. Yep. Um, okay. So now I'm going to take you through the book, through the lens of you and, and your career. Um, so we talked about this already, but chapter one is called get your art together. So when, when, like, whether it's you individually or as part of a band or a project, like when do you know you're ripe and ready to record as opposed to like forcing it? Well, so there's different ways of, of going about it. There's the, the element of saying, maybe if you've not recorded before, I say dive in and do it get started. Like you were saying about like the person who didn't have the experience and they're sort of waiting for the right time. There's one thing of like, just get a simple music editing program and start work on it. Then there's also the stage when you're like developing your material, you feel that you've got a certain set of songs that you want to record. That's also the time too, when you can just begin to get really focused rehearsals together See what kind of work you can do by listening, refining the parts, 
again, try to like, how do things work in tandem with each other? When you affect this Mm -hmm. element, it will then affect something else like this. And how do you find that balance? That's where you can really craft the art of working together as musicians in the studio to so your song, your composition, the story that you want to tell really comes together. And believe it or not, a lot of the experience that I've had and that I know a lot of other people have too, you wind up experimenting in the studio. One of the best things you can do is actually be prepared in terms of your, be practiced, be comfortable on your instrument. Be comfortable with your voice. Get your vocal warm-up. Get your, you know what I mean? But then also, there's that moment of total creative bliss where you can kind of let go and experiment in the studio as well, too. And sometimes that's like the, the, the best things happen when you're sort of least expecting or least holding on or in the not struggling. You're just trying things. And when you work with competent team members too. It's, I mean, it's amazing what a great engineer sitting at the control desk can do. You know, somebody at the board can be like, actually, we can help you do this. And if we actually double the vocal here, blah, blah, blah. Like that's where you begin learning all of these things. You can start, as I said before, by listening to records. In fact, a very good friend of mine and I were talking the other day and she was saying, I feel so overwhelmed when I think about sort of studio production. Like, I don't know, like how sort of compressors and reverbs and echoes and all these different things all kind of work together and even where I would even put them in a, in a mix. And when I said, well, here, like check in, we were listening to like, like an old Jefferson airplane song and listening to like the way the guitars were panned and the voices were panned Mm -hmm. and, and, and various things like that. So it starts by using your ears and then you can gain a reference point, but then talk with your band or, or if you have like your own vision, really think about that vision, find what it is you want to sound like. And then you can research those things, maybe find some other records that sound like that and go like, well, how did they affect David Bowie's voice on low or you right. know, whatever? Or what did they do to like the guitar on OK Computer? Or what are they doing with Nova Twins? Or what are they doing with, you know, the Lemon Twigs? Like, how are they getting that 70s sound? How are they getting, you know, that, that sort of really modern, you know, crunchy electronic thing? Like, what are the elements? All of that kind of thing is actually kind of fun when it pertains to your music. It's like doing this kind of exciting research to see how you can like grow this wild creature you want to build in the, in the studio. So I don't think there's like necessarily like only go into the studio after you've done six weeks of preparation. It's like mm. continuously prepare, learn, listen. And then when you feel ready to experiment and have fun, dive in. But that's the beauty of the modern age. You can do a lot of the work that you would do in the, an expensive recording studio at your house with a pretty affordable setup of a decent microphone and then get your ideas together in what we call pre-production of course and then take it to a larger studio perhaps work with a producer and engineer and, and see the finished product come together from there i love it um okay so chapter two is pre-recording marketing foundation email list text message club and social media um I don't know many artists that have um, a more robust email list situation than the Dresden Dolls. How many emails do you think is on the Dolls email list at this point? Do you know? At this point, I think there's close to 100,000. Yeah, that, that that's what I normally estimate. It's so around tell- there. And I have to add to this because I actually just spoke to our admin person um, just out of curiosity. We had just run um, sort of like a holiday merch sale. And she said to me, it's astounding, but you guys have an unbelievably high open rate. Yeah. Uh, meaning, you know what I mean? She said the Dresdenhall's open rate is around 30%. Wow. 
which is yeah. most people have around like two to four percent open rate. Totally. So that speaks a lot to, and we are most grateful to our our readers out there who support the band and follow along. But it's not just the readers. I mean, you know, I, I use that as an example constantly in in lectures and things like that because you've you, you two have always personalized it. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And. But I'm- yeah, go ahead. Well, and I was going to say, and it's very interesting. Like, for example, many bands that you see, like when I get a Nick Cave email, it's like the concert that you want to see is on this date. Thank you very much. Yeah, right. and if that he usually doesn't even say thank you. It's like, it's like exactly. here, here's the info, which also makes sense to me, too, because sure. people are busy. Things have to be done. And, you know, people are not like looking necessarily to spending yeah. like, you know, five or ten minutes of like reading through like a whole email thing. However, it is one of the things, and Amanda, obviously, in particular, in terms of personalizing, we like to have a bit of fun. It does feel nice to have, like, you've got um, something specific to say to and with, you know, your fans out there. So that has been part of the thing that we've cultivated with the Dresden Dolls. Yeah, and, um, you know, I just so people understand, like, why this is important. And also, I think it's important to put these things in place, actually, before you hit the studio or before you're starting a new project, because once the music's done, you you know, you want to have this stuff to fall back on. But, you know, like you guys developed an email list in the very early 2000s out of necessity. Like there weren't like conferences talking about this. I don't even think there was email list software. It was just you <laughs> yeah. guys like BCCing your fans being like, we're playing this loft party or we're doing this or we're doing that. And I remember Amanda like specifically saying to me, because you guys had started to develop um, a small team. You were a local band, but a local band on the rise. And so maybe you had a booking agent. I think maybe you had, you definitely had an attorney. And I remember Amanda saying to me like, well, what if you go away? What if my booking agent goes away? What if our fancy attorney goes away? This is the only way we have to communicate our music and shows to the fans. So that that's just so important for people to understand. <laughs> that's a good old bit of Yankee self-reliance there for you, darling. Depend on no one. Yeah, you got it. It was just, that was always Amanda's MO. It was like, no one's going to hand this to you. And if you rely on somebody else and they bill, well, Cause that goodbye. Right. You know? So it was all about keep it in house as much as possible to retain that sense of autonomy and, you know, being able to like have a sense of control over the people that you're reaching. That is the bedrock of your band's livelihood is being able to reach the people who want to come to your shows and support your music. So I think it is a very important thing. And it's, and it's again too, it's especially difficult uh, to maintain because in the age of social media, it's very easy to just kind of like try to figure out what the algorithm is and jump on whatever mm-hmm. the next new, you know, platform um, and it is and, and it's, find a master of that too. But I think it's it's healthy to have both. Um, the yes. the mailing list thing stemmed obviously out of Amanda's uh, art house parties, and then after every Dresdenall show, we would just beeline to the merch table and pass around the email list and say like, if you like what you saw, please sign this. This is our lifeline to you, and mm-hmm. that's how we can ensure this ongoing relationship. So definitely encourage artists to do that too. And it grew, and it just kept growing because I remember when Amanda put out her first solo album in two thousand eight. You know, we sent out information um, on that through the dolls list, of course, with permission. And I think there were about 40 or 50,000 names. So you guys have doubled, you know, in a decade and hopefully that keeps happening. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been nice to see steady growth and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll actually get out there to do some more shows in the future, too. Yay! And just to hammer home what we're talking about, 
Um, cause you, you described it perfectly. I mean, the reason tech companies are the most valuable companies in the world is because they have our data, you know, exactly. like we don't have the email addresses for listeners on Spotify. And I know it's very easy to get sucked into Instagram and Spotify or whatever people are doing now, but think of all the artists, probably yourself included that built fan bases on MySpace. Right. You know, this stuff evolves and changes every day, even though we don't realize when we're in it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's difficult not to feel like you're getting sometimes in the in the um, pattern of kind of just chasing your tail. And cha- and it's again, but that's the thing. It's like the people who have the control, it's like the rules are constantly changing. The algorithms are constantly changing. How many people out there have seen their numbers drop over and over again? You know, maybe exactly. get a couple thousand likes or something on this or a few hundred. And then all of a sudden it's down, you know, 60% and you're going like, what is the deal? And it's like, oh, yep. promote, promote your post. So it's like, that's exactly the mentality. Um, that we've and, and the, the sort of practice we've tried to avoid by staying self-sufficient, like keep that lifeline between you and your fans. That is an incredibly valuable asset to develop. A thousand percent. Okay, everybody, every musician's favorite topic, chapter three: get your business affairs together. <laughs> so um, you do session work all the time, and you have throughout your career. Um, I got. I mean, I I meant to talk to you about this before. Full disclosure, but you know, like. Can you talk about a work for hire agreement? So, you know, when when someone's hiring you to play on a recording, um, they usually offer you money and there's usually a work for hire agreement. Um, Is that I don't I'm not trying to like set up a trick question here, but it's like, is that scary? Is that standard? Can you talk about work for hire agreements at all? Yeah, absolutely. In in fact, you know, believe it or not, it's been relatively um, few and far between. I do get the occasional sort of like formal contract. And it's Mm -hmm. funny because, uh, and I don't mean this in in a bad way, it's almost kind of quaint in a way because, you know, I'm I'm working with a lot of very like up and coming uh, emerging artists, as one might say. And, um, but even then too, you know, with, um, you know, say for example, even if I had just done that one session with Violent Femmes and stuff like that too. Yeah, there's there's obviously, you know, various um, short contracts which, you know, restrict like the rights of, you know, uh, any performer on the thing saying you're not going to necessarily get royalties and stuff like that. That would be discussed. Mm -hmm. And of course, publishing information would be exchanged and things if you were getting cut in on uh, songwriting royalties and things like that. Most of the work that I've done has just been basically... um, a flat fee or occasionally a sliding scale where I negotiate with somebody if they're on a particularly tight budget. But um, oftentimes if I have to also maintain, this is the important thing for everybody is you also have to maintain the value of your time and your work and not just give yourself away for free. I have spent years cultivating these skills so that I can have a particular quality of output in the work that I do. And that also requires a certain amount of time that I have to rehearse here at my house to get the material together. So I show up to the recording session and I save the artist time. I have had numerous engineers say to me, I can't believe you got that done in one or two takes. Normally I'm here editing drums for hours. So that's a benefit to the artist. I'm not wasting your time because I'm showing up ill-prepared and I can't perform the song you've given me to play. I actually can bang out three songs for you super fast as opposed to it taking like a full day in a session, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I would encourage, you know, it's that mentality too of invest in the quality. Sometimes it feels like, oh man, I'm on a budget, you know, I can really only afford this, but it actually behooves the artist 
to save up, find ways of getting the budget together for the artists and musicians that you want related to your goals. It's not it's, go spend like a million dollars on your first record okay. and you haven't developed anything. Yeah. But if you have the choice between investing in something of quality that will have a lasting imprint on your music that you're releasing versus just the kind of cheap way out. I just worked with uh, a, a team um, about three months ago from New York who found that out the hard way where they were sort of paying, you know, little bits and pieces to uh, people that were essentially just ripping them off and not really delivering what they were looking for. And so you go through that experience, you know, four or five times and eventually say, you know what, no, I'm going to actually like, you, it's, you get what you pay for. You work with professional people and you're going to get professional results 99% of the time. And in the times that you don't, that's also to when certain contracts and agreements uh, come in very handy. I'm actually in a situation right now, I won't name names, where I've been waiting for six months on two mixes, which have already been paid for in full. Uh, so that's a little tricky. And this is where the yeah. sort of, somewhat of a name producer who's, you know, basically come back month after month going like, oh, I'm sorry, I just got really buried. I promise I'm not delaying. I swear I'll get it done this week. But that's where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, the final word in this particular discussion. But yeah. I, I'm, I work alongside an artist uh, who's dealing with that. And they just had the conversation saying, like, I understand, but here's our deadline. We are not able to move forward unless okay. we get these mixes from you. And since we have fulfilled our agreement and paid you in full, we need yeah. you now to do these agreements too. So again, you know, hey, the world's an imperfect place. What are you going to do? But it's knowing how to be prepared, knowing how to communicate properly and establish the right boundaries, both verbally, but also in a contract if need be, which we did do with this particular producer, and, yep. and learn how to stick to your guns. And in moments of doubt, ask for help and counsel in the right ways to help navigate that. That's right. And, you know, like, I just encourage artists, like, if they're at the local level, you know, because, you know, there's so many, like, there's so much, like, favor trading that goes on or whatever. I'm like, please just have people sign a work for hire. It can be a simple one-page agreement that says that, you know, you own the recording, but you're speaking to something really important as well. I also feel like when, when there's any paperwork and money exchanging hands, say, we will pay you half right now and the other half when we get the paperwork back, or in this case, when we get the mixes back, you know, because yeah. I, I don't even think, I don't even think it's that people are like ill-intentioned, you know, but that helps um, incentivize getting, you know, that, um, I can't think of it. I don't want to say, uh, just getting the work done. Yeah, you know? exactly. Right. And it was difficult. So this uh, particular contract came from uh, this producer's manager. And the way that it was structured was saying, I will actually, if you pay me this flat fee, I will cover the studio expenses out of that fee and include my fee. So for a flat X number of dollars, pay right, this right now it. and I'll book the yeah. studio time. We'll get everything recorded. And then you guys don't have to worry about paying anything. And don't worry if we go over time, I'll just see the project through to the end. So yeah. that was in, you know, one sense of, you know, nice to go like, okay, well, great. So we get that and everything's kind of tied up in one nice, neat payment. Yet, if yeah. the person is not delivering the work in a timely manner, that's where you can run into other issues. So just, yeah, make sure you have those T's crossed and I's dotted before you, you know, proceed. And you're also speaking to something that's crucial um, for session musicians and in all areas of music, but reputation, you know, like, you know, this, we don't have to get too into it, but it's like, this person who's kind of dragging their feet on getting the mixes back, like, isn't going to be hired again by any of you involved, I would, I would guess. <laughs> Not by me. Yeah, definitely. But, no. then, 
the positive is when you're talking about how, like as a professional, you put the time, you put the preparation in and you show up and you can do it in a few takes. It's like, well, hell yeah, I'm going to keep hiring Brian. This guy's not like, I knew I loved his drumming, but like that was really efficient. That was really professional. That was really awesome. So these are really good do's and don'ts as far as being a session musician as well as a mixing engineer and producer. Yeah, for sure. And anybody that thinks that it, you know, it somehow gets easier or better, like the further up the ladder you go, it doesn't work like that necessarily. In fact, oftentimes it gets more difficult, which is the benefit of, I think, working your way up and not necessarily just going, I'm just going to go for the biggest thing and skip all the stuff at the bottom. It's like the bottom is where you do so much of the crucial learning. And that's where you gain the wisdom and you get your game together. Like, so you don't make some tragic error when things are really high stakes and then you're suffering like major regret. It's like, get your, your whole system in place, get lots of experience, work with lots of different types of people, because that's the kind of variety of experience that builds your knowledge base and your wisdom and your point of reference so that you're not caught off guard. Right. That's what you want to do. Talk to lots of different and, and speak with lots of different people think about different types of perspectives. You know what I mean? It's like even listening to podcasts like this are incredibly informative. Um, and like, and I'm proud to say, like you said, I may, no, I do not, I appreciate your compliments saying that I've had some crazy illustrious career. I don't particularly view it like that, but I'm proud of the work I've done. But I also, I really enjoy working with artists that are excited about their project. That's actually why I position myself a great deal to work with bands that are kind of like on the come up. That's an exciting environment environment for me. I love to be part of that, like team mentality, be a real team player. And I'm, I'm proud actually that uh, the last couple of sessions that I've done, uh, the engineers, for example, when I was working with Alex, uh, the engineer there said, man, that was like a good, like four or five hour session where we didn't really know what we were going to be doing, but I'm glad that you stayed really positive. That really helped. And yeah. like you're, you said, most people just get frustrated and pissed off and give up. That was really cool that you kind of hung in there and worked with Alex, you know, to kind of build uh, the drum tracks as we were all kind of groping along, finding what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And, and you know what I mean? And so that's good. And that was Alex basically said like, yeah, man, we're going to be in and out of there in about an hour, <laughs> five, wow. hours, five hours later and being on, you know, a Skype call with the, you know, the owner of the toy manufacturer and working through loads of different ideas. That's just part and parcel of the thing. So you have to have an open, um, an open sense of, of trial and error, um, a willingness to participate and see what you're going to do through to the end before you put too many limitations on, not that you're, you know, being just taken advantage of, but there is something to be said for seeing something through. And I think that's a positive thing too. And to always to like, if you start to feel frustrated, take a few minutes to cool down, you know, go outside, take a little walk, clear your head, and then come back at it from a fresh perspective. And, you know, you just might find the answer that you've been looking for. That's, you know, right under your nose the whole time. Exactly. So if you are a session musician and you are hired to do something and you are sent a work for hire, do not fear or run to the hills. That is very standard. And in fact, I've worked with solo artists that are hiring session musicians all the time. And it's interesting because it's like if we're hiring eight musicians and seven sign the work for hire and the eighth is annoying about it, I'm not going to think of that musician for other stuff, nor is is the solo artist because we have that conversation like, oh, this person's kind of a pain. Um, So don't fear the work for hire. And then if you're 
um, an artist um, who needs to send out work for hires. They're like 50 bucks on LegalZoom and Cosend. And you didn't hear it from me. I'm sure you can find free ones on the internet. So <laughs> it's just important to get that stuff in place because if you're recording on your own, and you get signed to a label or you want to sync your music, you need a rep and warrant that you own it. So you don't want someone coming out of the woodwork later being like, oh, you're signed to whatever now or your song is there. So that's why you want to get these these ducks in a row um, before you hit the studio. Right. So. Very crucial. Um, this is also I think this is also a good time, you know, kind of before you hit the studio to get a band agreement together. Um, obviously you don't have to get, you know, into details on that, but any thoughts on the importance of that? Like I always view it as a prenup, you know, like we're in love now, <laughs> so let's agree <laughs> to this, um, because I think it can, um, help if, um, you know, there's issues in the future. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because oftentimes the things are done in a very casual way. Um, exactly. we, for example, with Radiator King, like we're, we, there's one member where we did write two new songs, uh, with a member who's not currently in the group, uh, right now, but there's no bad blood and we're absolutely, you know, the, as soon as we get the mixes back and the songs are ready to go, um, you know, that person's publishing, it's like a no brainer, do you know what I mean? Right. But you can't necessarily count on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think usually... Um, having that discussion, obviously, just to make sure that everybody knows exactly where they stand and that it's at least documented in some kind of like email you yes. know, or, or, you know, where it's written down somewhere. But I can, I mean, I can tell you from personal experience that even that doesn't necessarily always guarantee it. I've been in that situation. I won't name names, but it's like not always um, sort of foolproof. Like right. you want to make sure it's something I think that oftentimes has to be assessed along the way too. And I think good communication is um, paramount to, to like everything. If you start to get a sense that things are amiss, begin having the conversations just to check in because yeah. even sometimes with written agreements, things are not necessarily um, uh, it, it adhered to, to what the agreement right. was. And so and that's something I can just tell you from personal experience. So um, it is good to have the technicalities of having these things written down to take every situation, use your common sense too. And one of the trickiest things I think for all of us to do is to like, it's, you want to believe things are going to be good. And oftentimes they are, but you want to also that if something smells a little funky, like don't eat it. Do you know what I mean? Or just super important. Yeah. Or just prepare yourself for the unpredictability or predictability, depending on how you want to look at it, of yep. when things may turn in a different direction. I in one band experience had that happen, but um, do I regret my entire time with a band? No. It's unfortunate that things went the way they did financially. Um, but I knew the risks of it and I was prepared to accept that. And I don't regret it actually, actually mm -hmm. it wound up being kind of okay. But, um, but if you're looking for a sure bet and especially if you have something like long-term that you're doing, yeah, it's definitely, and, and you'll learn a thing or two about, like you said, about the person who's not willing to sign a particular agreement. Well, yep. that's indicative of their perspective on the whole situation in general. And that may not be the right situation for you. And it's oftentimes the balancing act of going like, this is like, 80% good and 10% kind of questionable and like definitely 10% sketch. Mm -hmm. So like working out those ratios, depending on your own comfort levels and career goals 
is a very important thing. So start with yourself, ask yourself where you lie, and then have the guts to stand up for yourself if something feels amiss. And I think, you know, you hit it on the head before by just talking about communication, you know, especially if you're starting a a new project, you know, a new band, a new group. It's like, just have that conversation, even if it's, I mean, I've never heard someone not be on the same page about this, but even if it's like, okay, we're a band and maybe one person has a little more money. And so they're like, I confront um, our touring expenses, you know, so I need to get paid back for that. And then we're going to split whatever we make, you know, so just have those conversations. So everyone's on the same page. No one's making assumptions. And then you're exactly right. Um, My wonderful attorney, Joyce, approves of this. And she's the most type A person. Throw it in an email that you both agree to. You don't have to run out and spend thousands of dollars on a band or group agreement. Just have the conversation. Agree to put it down in writing. Respond to the email that you all agree. Put the prenup in a drawer and go make your art. Right, exactly. Then it's at least documented if, they, yeah. if push kind of come, comes to shove and things like that. But um, yeah, oftentimes the kind of situations that I've been in have been very casual, sort of one-off situations, flat fee, um, you know, and you know, exactly. unless there's like songwriting involved in that kind of thing, but that's easy enough to to work out as well too. Thanks to all yeah. the, the platforms and ASCAP, which I work with, has been very easy to you know work with myself. And I've introduced artists I've worked with who weren't even aware of it. Um, and got, yep. them, got them signed up and done the publishing splits right all online too. So that stuff, even though if it's, I, and if there's people out there uh, who haven't yet experienced um, working with that kind of a thing, it's really not that scary. Pay the sign up fee, get it done. It's super crucial. We lips. So, okay. So side note, I didn't think I needed um, an episode on performing rights organizations, but then I've met so many artists and students over the past year or so that like thought ASCAP and BMI were like scary and like, and I, so I literally, I forget what it's called, but I, li- we literally have an episode, like you must sign up for a PR or something <laughs> yeah. and had Loretta Munoz on, um, to, to break that down. So thank you for reiterating that point. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So chapter four is a uh, recording with or without a budget. You did a great job talking about re- recording, but let's bring this down to, you know, drums and guitar. It's like, what are like a, what, you know, if someone doesn't have a lot of money, how can they get into drumming or, or getting a guitar? Uh, for a studio set up at home? Yeah. You know, it's like, do they need to, you know, fundraise to go get a $5,000 kit or, no. or they're kind of, you know, more starter kits. You can get. <laughs> yes. In fact, this has actually become almost like a side hobby. I've had a lot of uh, my drum students or uh, friends of my family and that kind of thing who are getting into drumming call me and say like, do you have any recommendations for drum kits? Which yes, absolutely. And I have to say one of the encouraging things is that for the sort of entry level price points out there these days, you can actually get some pretty decent drum kits. Um, good friend of mine, uh, uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, just bought a kit for uh, their daughter who just turned 15 and is getting into drumming and plays in her marching band and all that kind of stuff and um, got a fantastic deal. So you don't have to break the bank. Um, exactly. And yeah, I mean, I think for, you know, roughly between about 700 to to $1,000, you have to err on the side of caution if you're going to go sort of below that in my experience. But um, generally for that price point, you can get a, a very respectable drum kit. Absolutely. I have one myself, actually. And um uh, certainly for guitars too, you know, eBay and reverb.com and, you know, local guitar shops and anything where you can kind of go and find a deal, um, experiment, find something that speaks to you. You don't have to invest loads and loads of money. Find something that inspires you to play, that makes you want to sit down and play music, let alone just, you know, practice and you know work on technical skills and things. Find an instrument that like feels like your, your buddy, you know, 
your partner that you can sit down. With. Yeah. You know what I mean? Geez. It's like, cause you know, what are we doing here? You know, so we're not just yeah. like, you know, like blank away and work, work on, you know, scales and stuff like that. Just mindlessly developing technique for no real world application. Hopefully the instrument you purchase is something that helps you express your soul to the world and gives you that real sense of joy. That's something if that's getting robbed from you, boy, we're missing a whole big, important part of that. Exactly. And, and if you don't quite have access to that and you're still in school, you know, check out your school's music department, see if there's a kit you can use there. Absolutely. Or donations or anything yet. Like just use all of the resources, you know, around you poke around, ask people, you never know what some, oftentimes people go like, man, I got this drum kit. I haven't had, you know, time to play it in years. I'm just going to get, does your kid want it? That actually happened to a student of mine. The kid's dad, Amazing. his boss was like, just gave him this beautiful premier drum kit. And that's wow. the, kid that the kid's been using and building on. And through conversations with me, they're like, oh, well, is there another thing? What could we get to fix this? There's usually wow. a very affordable situation if you need an upgrade on like a, a seat or a hi-hat stand or guitar amps and things like that too. And obviously, the thing to do is take advantage of the current technology now with all of the numerous incredible programs. I happen to be a Mac user and I use Logic Pro X. I have mm-hmm. been amazed at the level, just at you know, the small bits of recording that, that I need to do here in terms of making demos or overdubs for people or you know, short drum sessions and things. Um, the fact that it's not subscription-based and that you get free upgrades, you know, periodically that just add more and more useful right. tools, use those kinds of things. If it seems scary and you want to start on a garage band or a simpler program, do it. But the main thing is, is just try and don't worry. You're not going to like hurt anybody potentially, <laughs> but like get, get out there and just plug, you know, the guitar in. There is a YouTube tutorial for everything these days. Um, you know what I mean? And most yeah. of this stuff is so user-friendly that there really isn't any excuse for us to kind of go like, I'm just, I'm terrible at it. I don't really know. Just give it a try. You will surprise yourself at how quickly you're able to pick some of these things up, even for really basic things. I did it for my neighbor just down the hall. Um, She was kind of like, I I have this Pro Tools set up. I haven't really tried this new microphone. Can you just pop over and help me? And five minutes later, she was up and running and she was like, oh, great. Yeah, I didn't even realize it was that easy. So that's the kind of empowering thing we're in today that I hope people are able to use. Yes. And again, put yourself out there, post on social media. I'm looking for a drum kit. I'm, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Or even I'm, I'm looking for somebody to show me how to use logic or a pro tool. Do you know what I mean? There's a, like, even a lot of the music stores um, will offer um, like sort of like Sunday morning courses or something like oh, that. That's right. for now. I've, I've, yeah. I think I went to um, age, years ago, I went to like a guitar center thing for like a pro tool session or re- little recording seminars and stuff that they just do for free, which is great. So the, the resources are there. They're out there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Chapter five is music publishing isn't scary or confusing. Um, And we had a whole episode on that. So if you want to learn why it's not scary and confusing, you can check that out. (laughs) But how do you handle music publishing? Whether you're going into, you know, a session situation or, you know, in some of the bands you're in, you know, because you don't, you know, like, and you don't have to talk about Dresden Dolls, but I'm just using this as an example. Like Amanda, you know, came to you with the songs. So how do you approach this as a drummer, multi-instrumentalist? It's been very cut and dry for me in the last several years. When I'm involved in songwriting, I take a cut of the publishing. That's always dependent on the conversation with the artist and my involvement in the actual songwriting. Otherwise, when I'm doing session work, I just get paid, you know, for my time in the studio as a flat rate. Boom. Yeah. 
That's so right. I keep it very, very simple. Um, but I, I'm very happy to, like I said, have been working, uh, you know, with ASCAP. And, you know, for example, uh, last year I had a project called NR with my buddy. Um, and we, you know, basically just split the the songwriting and the all that stuff 50-50. So that was very easy to do and set him up with an account. And, you know, was within about an hour, we're ready to go. Love it. Um, and, um, and I checked the name of that episode. It's called Songwriters Need a PRO. And I was surprised that was something we needed to educate people on, but I'm, but we do. And I'm glad you are educating the people you're working with. God. Yes. It's like the most thing you cannot like, you know, emphasize enough how important that is for songwriters to know and to know the accessibility of it. Don't be afraid of taking ownership of the songs that you write and registering them with ASCAP. That's right. And then you also need your songs published beyond that because ASCAP or BMI, which is just in the U.S., um, obviously there's PROs, you know, in people's specific country. Um, if you are just signed up for your PRO, I talk about this on every freaking episode. Everybody's probably sick of it. Um, and your songs are being covered, streamed, sold, any of the above. You need someone administering your publishing on top of that. I am really obsessed with song trust because anyone can sign up, up, uh, anyone can sign up for it. So just know that you're missing a revenue stream if your published if your publishing is not administered on top of your PRO. So that is a reminder for everyone. Um, when do you have that conversation? Whether it's like the project you just met about songwriting, whether it's the project you just mentioned, or you know session work, because um, again, communication is so important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's usually a natural sort of conversational point. It's usually kind of step three or four. You know, when yeah. it's the kind of like, oh, hey, it's great to meet you, boy. I'm really excited about the kind of music that you're doing. This is going to be great to work together. What are you guys thinking? Then you sort of usually generally start discussing the vision for the project. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And then you start discussing like, um, you know, applications like, well, you know, we'd like to like record this part here and record, you know, the vocals in a different studio and da 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 da. And there's like there's some logistics. And then if it's and it's if it still seems like a good match and it looks like it's a, a likely prospect. Yeah, then you sort of say, and then what were you talking about? Okay, well, if we're going to be actually songwriting together, then we'll get the, obviously, we'll get the publishing information exchanged. Or if Mm -hmm. you guys have these songs written and I'm just coming in to play drums or guitar or whatever, here's my day rate for my studio stuff. And for me, that has kept it uh, fairly cut and dry. Um, uh, There, I'm sure there are a lot of other ways of doing it. That's why, again, it's like, don't go on what just one or two people say, if you can listen and learn from a variety of musicians and their experiences and, you know, learn about the spectrum of ways that you can get paid and earn income from production work, writing work, producing work, all that kind of thing. That's right. And then when you agree to the songwriting splits, again, put it in writing. Email is totally cool. You know, like talk about it and then say, hey, I'm going to throw this in an email. Just respond to that. The older school way, and there's nothing wrong with this, is people would literally physically write you know, on a split sheet, what the splits are, and, and you can both sign it. So either one works, but just have that. You don't need anything more fancy or formal beyond that. But again, that's that's going to help you in the future if you want to do a publishing deal, if your songs get synced, all that good stuff. And we covered that in depth on the music publishing isn't scary or confusing episode. Yes. Um, so I'm going to break from the book for a second and go to a few audience questions um, related to this episode. Um, so again, um, you don't have to get specific about this. I think we can speak relatively generally. But the first question is, uh, studio musician pay rates and options for pay. Any thoughts? I mean, I can give thoughts on that if you want. Just in general or for myself? Well, I mean, the first thing I would, I mean, I, you know, as a manager, I would say like, well, what's your budget? 
That's right. going to be my response. And it's really going to depend on the scope of the project, right? Like, mm-hmm. are you hiring a, uh, a studio musician for one session? Are you hiring them, you know, for a week? So is there, you know, it, like, um, those are all factors. I would think those are all factors that you're keeping in mind. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very funny because I've noticed such a, like, again, like a wide array of instances. There was a time when I paid um, $5,000 for a mixing of an album where I was like, oh boy, boy, I must be nuts to be doing this. And I wound up being like, wow, we got that first steal because of the amount of time yeah. it took to do. I was like, okay, that actually, yeah. and considering that this person's uh, um, manager actually took a percentage, you know, from the, the fee, I was like, okay, that, that was a situation where that went way longer than anybody was expecting. And right. Uh, saw it through to the end. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you have to basically just establish like how much is your time worth to you if we're speaking strictly in the instance of time, if you're not saying I'm part owner of the intellectual property and I'll be seeing residuals from this, what is my time worth and what can I, you know, offer? And, and you need to basically just price accordingly to that. In addition to the factors are, well, how much do I want to be a part of this project? Um, maybe, you know, that instance, because it's the balance of your quality of life and your time, time is all we sort of have. Do you know what yep. I mean? It's like, that's the most valuable thing. If people are, pay- yeah, you know what I'm saying? So if people are paying you for your time, if you just start to give it away, the quality of your work and your whole attitude and your life situation and outlook are going to diminish. So I would recommend, I'm going to also say, find the things that are important to you in terms of your creative output get practiced in them so that when you deliver the goods, they're really something of value. Set yep. your price of what feels proper to your, basically where, where you feel okay giving your time for that amount of uh, money and mm-hmm. stick to that. It's very easy to have somebody try to just whittle you down and go like, well, my budget's really only this. Okay, well then you need to build your budget up a little bit more because I'm not going to just give away my time for that little amount of money. And you'll see that you will then begin to start attracting the people who are willing to rise to that level. When you maintain a particular um, standard, you will surround yourself with people that are willing to meet you at that standard. And hopefully you will also surround yourself with people who raise your standard as well. And you elevate yourself. You elevate your artistic outwork, the pride that you take in and the quality of, of work that you deliver and that you get you know, properly compensated for it in all these various ways, like you're saying. And that just comes from being informed about how to do that. That is really good advice. And so like once you set your rate, I also think that's that's you know, where it can allow you to get flexible in the long term. So I'm just speaking like totally generally, like maybe locally, right? So maybe someone's rate is $100 a session, Mm -hmm. but someone wants to book you for a month. And so that would be $2,800 for the month or four weeks, let's say. And and they might say, you know what? Like we really only have $2,500. Well, to me, like go for it. You know what I mean? Like you're cutting them a little bit of a deal, but you're getting more money than your just your one day rate. But I agree with you. Like listen to your heart and soul and what's right for you. Um, But don't be afraid to ask what's your budget. Um, because you don't want to lowball yourself at the same time. Yeah, lowballing is a very difficult thing because nobody wants to come off as being greedy. And right. you need to get over that because it's yeah. not about being greedy. 
It's about saying like, I, this is what I do for my livelihood and I have yeah. my own rent and bills to pay. And that mm-hmm. doesn't make me a bad person if I'm, you know, just giving my time away to you for free. And I'm saying like, no, I actually need to be paid this amount because you're actually delivering a level of quality to the artist that's hiring you that is valuable. It is worth something. And if they don't find it valuable, then they are free to go get it from somebody who will probably not deliver the same level of quality. And that's not someone you want to necessarily particularly be associated with anyway. There are all, again, the whole spectrum of things where some things might be passion projects. You may say, oh, well, this is a friend of mine and I don't mind doing it or whatever. I've definitely been in that situation, but also found myself at times having to say, okay, that was good. And I was happy to do this like as a friend thing, but this really isn't something that I want to continue just endlessly dedicating time to. Here's my standpoint. And sometimes that can cause friction and people may go like, well, what's wrong with him? Nothing's wrong with me and nothing's wrong with you. This is just a healthy boundary so that I don't start feeling uh, resentful towards the project. That's why it's good. Think about what you need from a project, what you can give to a project, and the boundaries that then properly support that that situation. I'm, you know, I'm with Radiator King. It's again, we're all like three members. We're, you know, working hard. We only get paid if the actual band gets paid. We get paid yeah. if Adam gets, you know, whatever like that. I'm not like that with every situation. You know, totally. it, that's a particular uh, where like we are band members together. Most of the time, I'm being hired. Uh, just for a finite amount of time where people want my particular skills for a particular project and then they're on their merry way. Uh, so in any and all between can work out just knowing what is a healthy boundary for you is a good, um, I think first, like it's like the cornerstone of everything from there, then you'll be able to have proper communication with everybody else on that project. That's right. And I think something that, um, you know, where people can get creative as far as owning their, because so many more artists own their master recording rights, you know, than ever before. Um, If, and you know, I'm talking about like when you're in in the New Hampshire days, although there are passion projects as well. Like if, if you're just getting started and there's truly no budget, I mean, I see this all the time. You know, you ask your friends to play on it. They're like, don't worry about it. I don't need any money. I, I know you don't have any money. Well, cut them in on the master. Mm-hmm. Give them 5%, not any ownership, but 5% of the royalties on the master. You know, and I, I know there are, there are many attorneys that aren't going to love me saying that. But to me, that's the flexibility of owning your master recording. So it's like, if I mean, I think this sounds awesome if you're 15 years old. But like, if you're 15 years old, you don't have the money, you know, just be like, yeah, but I want to cut you in. I want to compensate you. So I think there are ways to get creative when there are truly, when there is truly no money. If there's money, you got to pay your session musicians. Definitely. Yeah. And if anything, it's a really great precedent to set too. And that yes. then will, that will gain you a reputation for treating the people that you work with fairly. And that is something not to be undervalued. And I also don't like it when people are like, oh, well, it's just Spotify royalties or it's not that much money. You never know, you know, like, know. um, we had an artist named Kala on the podcast and he, um, he lives, I'm recording this in Milwaukee, visiting my family, and he lives here in Milwaukee. He pays his rent and his full-time expenses with his Spotify royalties and right. land sinks and stuff. And you, so you just never know what's going to happen. So when people are offering you money, say yes. Right. Yes, exactly. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, 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 it's good um, in, in one sense to feel a part of the ownership of something like that, too. It will, I think, in a way positively reflect the way you bring and carry yourself to those projects too, as yes. opposed to going like, Oh, I'm just like a lowly, you know, 
you know, nothing. And this is, is, is like not getting good. You're going to do better work when you feel that sense of involvement and financially too, because that's when we're professional musicians, that's how we are surviving. So yes, own it. Don't be afraid of it. Learn about it. And then, you know, treat yourself and other people fairly and be informed. Yes, exactly. Okay. So we kind of covered this, but another audience question, what is the state of the session music industry currently? I've seen many studio musicians setting up their own in, in-home studios and recording remotely compared to going into a studio. How is it affecting engineering studios as a whole? How about this? To reframe that a little bit, no offense to, to Brian D who asked that question. Um, do you feel different as a professional if it's a high-end studio or it's a bedroom or what? Because obviously people have amazing home setups. So do you have any thoughts on that? I don't personally appreciate it. Anytime I sit down at a drum kit, I try to give 100% to it, whether it's like a small studio or whatever, because the result is the same, that you want to capture a great performance. The mics may be slightly different price points, but ultimately the music has got to be killing on it. Um, To Brian's point in his um, question, I've noticed, I mean, of course, I mean, there's, I think a lot of periods uh, where studios have ups and downs and things. Obviously 2020 was devastating to a lot of studios. And I think it is a harrowing task for any studio manager to keep like a full-fledged recording studio going now however i do know the people that are maintaining them and many people that i work with are like overloaded with work right now um so that's at least a positive thing some places which may have been uh too expensive to maintain sadly are gone certainly we've seen a lot of that happening in new york and los angeles um but the studios that are around and finding a way to survive and build their reputation on you know solid results and, and engineers that are great to work with uh those seem to be flourishing um in my experience and yes and then also saying like can you build? I decided to put together a studio setup for myself uh, several years ago uh, with not a ton of money, but was able to basically put together um, a good set of studio monitors, my computer, um, obviously using um, uh, Logic Pro X as my DAW and a couple of you know decent mic pre's that I was able to link together. And now I have 16 channels analog uh, that I can run into, which has been absolutely incredible for me to be um, self-sufficient in if people send me say can you do this like i'm a singer songwriter i have a really easy song you can just do it at your apartment great then i'm set up to do that i can get paid for my work and it like the gear that i bought it's it pays for itself because now i don't have to go an hour away and pay a studio for that if i need to if i can get it done on my own beautiful if we want to go for a different sort of context and i'm doing like lots of loud bashing and the volume is not necessarily home volume Perfect. There's a whole range of studios. There's a place that I work with up in Van Nuys, uh, extremely uh, affordable and loads of, you know, more extravagant studios uh, sort of around the city that are that are also equally exciting and can be very stimulating to work in, too. So it's kind of the mix of um, the budget. You don't necessarily want it. Sometimes it's nice to actually work in a place where if you feel inspired and you're really pushing yourself and getting the results that you need. Fantastic then sometimes it's worth like spending a little bit of extra money um, on the right kind of environment. If it's going to help the music flourish, great, you know, but definitely you can split to, if you want to go get basics and record your drums and, you know, bass and guitar kind of all together, you can get a studio, get great drum sounds and do that. That has been one of the major indicators. What is the studio drum sound going to be? 
what do we right. need from this? Can it be a simple little small room in somebody's you know back bedroom? Sometimes that's totally fine. Do we need a little bit more of like a hi-fi kind of a beautiful ambience with like that gorgeous reverb that only that particular room can have and the mics and the thing? And you're also kind of paying for the experience too. So sort of like staying at a hotel, if I might use that crass analogy. It's kind of like we could go stay at a really fancy hotel with the jacuzzi and the thing and the blah, 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 and the pool and the gym. You know what I mean? And you're like, you're like, great. Well, I mean, you could always go stay at the cheap motel sort of off the highway for, you know, 60 bucks a night or whatever or less, you know, and uh, you get to get the basics and it's, you know, pretty bare bones, but it, you know, it's a bed for the night. So it's a lot of it too. You want to cultivate an atmosphere of creativity and everybody feeling relaxed and having a good time. So research studios, oftentimes in my experience, I've noted that um, engineers and studio managers can be very flexible about the rate and you can negotiate. So don't necessarily write off a, a seemingly expensive studio just by what you hear the initial offer is. If you say, well, we have this and we can be out by that time or we can do that on off hours, oftentimes it's a negotiable, uh, negotiable rate. Um, so definitely explore those opportunities too to see what's right for your particular project. That's right. And the more you can learn on your own, then you're going to be that much more efficient when you are in the studio situation. Absolutely. Which is, again, the huge benefit why, of like, don't be scared of music publishing. Don't be scared of home studio stuff. Yes. I, you know, there is um, ample help uh, all around the internet or, you know, friends of yours potentially too who have experience that you say, like, can you just come over for an hour? I would love to set up a new session or whatever. Just treat it like a new toy. Pop yeah. open that application, pop it, and just like what I have liked about Logic personally was the sort of user-friendly interface. Pro Tools to me was a, a little bit more complex, definitely like a, a lot of things that you can do with it, but not. I didn't need to access every single one of those tools like that for right. the work that I was doing. When I need to work on or whip up a demo or do a, a drum basic for somebody here, I have that in my DAW, and it's, it's not only is it easy to understand, but it's getting like upgraded um every several months with like new tools that i can go like oh what's that or there are also like the third-party companies um like isotope or artoria uh, which offer amazing additional tools and plugins um that you can use which just they they give you a world of recording and mixing opportunity that just seem to become more and more streamlined as technology advances so stay educated and uh take advantage of it exactly Okay, we kind of covered this question indirectly, but what is the best way to uh, what is the best way to meet the bigger producers and music directors? I know for me, being at the small club slash bar venue status and recording small records, it's very difficult to meet the larger producers and music directors of the industry. Not not to answer that. I mean, what I think is like what we were talking about. Put yourself out there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for example, we literally just in Radiator King, we just cold called a producer that we wanted to work with and spoke to their manager. And before you knew it, we were speaking with them and we're like, okay, that was bizarrely easy. I guess, uh, you know, sometimes people are not necessarily as um, unapproachable as you might think or, you know, hidden away in, you know, weird producer castles where they you know, you can't get to or whatever. You know, I don't know. You, they want to work too. Of course they want to work. And, and so it's, you know, it's just, just, just try it and see what you get. Like, I don't know what the, uh, the protocol is for trying to get in touch with somebody like Rick Rubin or whoever, sure. you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's like a one type of thing, but Definitely. like, you know, but there are certainly a host of producers that are out there that are super experienced, have amazing resumes that are looking to work and, you know, they may be booked up for a few months, but they're, they're available. 
and, um, you know, find their websites, reach out to whoever their main contact person is, if it's not them directly and just see. Exactly. And also, um, you know, the, the first Dresden Dolls record was self-released initially. How did Martin BC, um, get involved with that? That was through a chance meeting, like you mentioned, for example, at like a, like a gathering that was a party at the can factory. Um, the building, which Martin Studios in uh, on the corner of Third Street and Third Ave in Brooklyn, um, was also like kind of like an artist residence. And the guy who was the, um, I guess, basically the landlord and, and sort of like ran that artist community, Nathan Elbogan, was throwing a big party to which Martin went and Michael Giraud from Swans and various people went. And um, Amanda's friend Marissa said, "You've got to come down to this place. It's amazing. I just met this guy, and he's he's really super friendly, and they you, you'll love it." So Amanda went down for the weekend, went to this party, and I remember when she came back and she she played a couple songs on like the piano there, and I actually had a really great old photo of her uh, from that night. Um, and she said, "I think I found our, I think I found our guy." Wow. Like, and she said, "There's a guy named Martin BC there, and he's worked with you know Swans and Sonic Youth and like all these amazing bands, and he totally." you know, understands like what we're trying to do. And he seems like a really, really nice guy. So that is what began. It just through a conversation, just like a meeting, like, Oh, Oh, hi, nice to meet you. Oh, you do this. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. And it's sort of people. The one thing I want to dispel too about my experience thus far in Los Angeles, because I know I had a lot of biases before I came here from the East coast about LA and all the things that I'd heard about that. It was like schmoozy in this and that blah, blah, blah. And sure that certainly exists, but that exists in all corners of the world. What I've noticed is a lot of the wonderful work that I've gotten here has just come through like telling people kind of what I do. And you ask people what they do. It's like, Oh, that's great. Blah, blah, blah. And before you know, it, you're kind of all chatting and everybody's kind of like, Oh, like that person's like into this. And it's not weird where it's like people, I've heard people go like, Oh, the thing about LA is when you go, it's like, people go like the first question is like, so what do you do? I've sure. not found it like in that term. It's people are just like, yeah. they're moving here because they want to connect with other creative people. Totally. And so I've encouraged friends of mine to like, don't necessarily feel insecure about telling people what you're up to. It doesn't have to be in some sort of self-aggrandizing way where you come off like a real schmuck. It's just like, just be like, yeah, so that, you know, I'm looking to do this. I moved to LA and I was like hoping to connect with these kind of people. I'm involved with this and I work over at that studio and you have this band going right now and stuff. And before you know it, people are going like, oh yeah, you know that guy? Oh my God, he's like a best friend. And we would grow up together in Milwaukee, whatever. And it's like that kind of just general socializing is become the sort of norm of the sort of networking that I do which is way different than like getting dressed up in some outfit and going to some like patio thing and holding a martini that I'm pretending to drink, hoping I bump into somebody famous. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not that kind of a deal. Have faith in what you do. Be open to meeting people and be open to just, you know, sharing what you're excited about in life rather than being like, I'm so great. And I do this and I'm so great. And I do that like that. There is a kind of person that's like that where all they do is talk about themselves. That's nice. not what I'm saying. What you want to do is find other like-minded creative people and share what you're excited about and find that yeah. common ground with people. That is awesome. And I have gotten into loads of really fun projects and it was sad to see the whole COVID situation basically wipe out like a bunch of my sort of current friend group at the end of 2019 and like the six different bands I was playing with because a lot of people uh, had to move out. But the philosophy remained true and just by show up, 
Be respectful. Treat yourself with respect and others. Share what you're into and do a good job when you're called upon to do it. And that has yielded more amazing results than all of the fancy networking, you know, all that kind of stuff. And just be yourself, which is what you're saying too. Absolutely be yourself and surround yourself with people that reciprocate. Do you know what I mean? A lot of times people, I think they feel that they have to choke down somebody's abominable personality and narcissistic crap because they think it's going to get them somewhere. If y'all feel happy dealing with that, you can get on with it. If not, but just realize there's more than one way to skin a cat out there. And you don't necessarily have to compromise your personal integrity to do the things that you're excited about in life. And just remember that. And also like, especially in the, I feel like old saying this, but like in the internet era, like people are more accessible than you think because like the Martin BC example for the Dresden Dolls first record, perfect example. Like some people might look at that from afar, you know, when they're putting together a record and be like, oh, but he's worked with Sonic Youth and Swans. We could never get that guy. I mean, Martin totally connected with your music and it worked out. So you're right. I mean, I think if you email Rick Rubin's manager, like you may or may not get a response, but it's like, People are accessible and they want to work. So don't be afraid to reach out. Right. And it's, again, you may, who knows? There's like the people like the whole, I loved that interview between Kendrick Lamar and Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. That was like maybe in some ways, potentially not the most intuitive relationship that you would have thought of right there, but those guys like really connected. Or even like when you hear about numerous people who have like met Paul McCartney and worked with him or things yeah. like that, you know what I mean? You never know. It's always worth just asking, reach out. The worst that can happen is the person's unavailable. Yeah. Big deal. Exactly. And the best thing that happens is like doors open in your life that you never possibly conceived imaginable. So give that the shot. That's worthwhile. Or maybe the producer is too slam, you know, like I'm booked up for the next 18 months or whatever. Have you thought about this person? Or if it's a producer manager, yeah. they could be like, check out some of my other clients. So. Absolutely. And that also too has been a huge part of my experience in Los Angeles too, that if someone is unable, they know like four other people that they can refer you to. They're like, oh, but my buddy so-and-so is like involved in that. Here, let me give you his number. Exactly. Awesome. Great. Then awesome. Now all of a sudden you're expanding your world and your whole, and your resource base. It's, I mean, the subtitle of this episode is putting yourself out there. Awesome. That's, that's- <laughs> yes. So that's okay. That. So la- last audience question. Um, mo- although I might have a few more for, for you, but I won't, I won't keep you too much longer. No, um, mo- most musicians know being in major cities like LA, Chicago, Nashville, and New York have traditionally been more of the places to be for the session musician slash a touring musician. Are there other cities that fall into this category besides the major ones? Um, they also add example of Minneapolis, Denver, or Portland. I'm just going to say one thing on this. Like, again, I go back to Bon Iver, mm-hmm. who's built an empire in northern Wisconsin, which might not mean anything to anyone, but it's like, I'm from Milwaukee, and everything above that to me is, is quote unquote, up north, right. which is kind of <laughs> rude because it's a massive state. Sure. Um, but that's what I love about, you know, technology and recording. So, yeah, any thoughts on that? The thoughts are go explore. Use your eyes and ears. I didn't really know at the time what the world of Boston, Massachusetts was going to hold for me when I moved there in 99 or 2000. You know what I mean? I was like, well, there's more people. So logically, there's going to be at least more opportunities and more resources and more of like a hub in terms of the music business. There are just bands by nature, like by proxy of being um, around that you're going to stumble into more situations should you put yourself out there, as you say. So it's not really for me to say. I noticed that, um, like, I don't know offhand. Yes, I'm sure there's loads of really cool pockets of uh, music stuff going on in, you know, Kansas City and 
Butte, Montana, and who knows what else. I'm sure there's all kinds of amazing things that change cyclically too. New York City is also a way different place than when I moved there in 2007. Do you know what I mean? A lot of things have transpired. Do you know what I mean? So I realized that for myself and the kinds of things that I wanted to do, I had sort of been there. I lived in New York for 11 years, had a great time, but was having difficulty um, connecting with sort of like new kinds of opportunities. So the move to Los Angeles for me was really invigorating and refreshing. I likewise knew people who have like lived in Los Angeles a lot of times, felt like they had sort of like tapped all of their friend groups and opportunities and like relocated to like Nashville or Austin or what have you. So that's great. It's like not necessarily the city itself. It's like the the mentality that you bring to a given location, how you decide to connect to the residents there and the opportunities there. And with some research, you might be able to say, well, there's a lot of cities um, that might not have, you know, the kind of glitz and glamour of a New York or an L.A. or, you know, Atlanta or whatever, you know, where there's a lot of industry, be it television, film or music. But they've I know a friend that's there or I know a guy with a studio there and you might find that kind of thing. So just explore. There's nothing wrong with like just getting a taste test of certain places, travel a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Get some of that worldliness and then talk to other people too. take a look at what people in your line of work or interest are doing. Where are they migrating? Where is, you know what I mean? Keep your ears open. Like where are things kind of happening? How can you be with other people that are doing the kinds of things that you're doing as well too? Even if what you do stands out from the crowd, for example, I definitely felt like a a kind of a, a misfit when I moved to Boston and, you know, the Dresdenals were definitely looked at askance, like, what the heck are you two weird mind drum piano playing freaks of nature like doing? This is like not mm-hmm. really cool in Boston at this time. But what we realized was that there was still the right resources. There was the ecosystem of clubs. There was Amanda's right. amazing house where we could rehearse with her very supportive artist community and landlord. There were all the different like all ages venues and art venues and smaller clubs, you know, that led up to the Middle East, which led up to the Paradise, which led up to the Orpheum Theater, which led up to the Fleabag Ooh. Pavilion. Do you know what I mean? There was that pathway there. And that's something that I do think is important for musicians to consider now find a city with the resources where you can germinate and then grow stage by stage. And it's becoming more and more difficult to find that in a way, but they are out there. I have found it personally in Los Angeles with the stuff that I'm doing, but look everywhere, ask around and just, you know, do what you can to stay abreast of like what's happening out there. And also, um, every scene has seen FOMO. Mm -hmm. So like people in Boston are like, we're not New York, you know, like people in Chicago even complain. I'm like, what are you talking about? You have like Pitchfork and Lollapalooza, you know, people in Milwaukee complain. So it's like, you know, again, it's like, just like you said, go, (laughs) go to what's closest or go like, it's so interesting because my, my journey was similar to yours where I looked at I looked at uh, NYU when I was in high school. And I guess I said to my mom, like when we were touring the campus, I'm like, I'm not ready for this coming from Wisconsin. So Boston was that perfect kind of, it's definitely a major market, no doubt, right. but it's, it's not New York city. And again, like I'm, I'm speaking very personally here. It's just like, I just found out the university of Wisconsin Oshkosh has a recording and music business program. You know, I guarantee you there's some sort of scene there, definitely. right? And, and there's definitely a scene in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where Bonavera is from. And so maybe you start there, then maybe you go to Milwaukee, maybe Minneapolis, Chicago, you know? So um, right. yeah, just 
put yourself out there. Right. The yeah. yeah. Right. Start think of it like in stages. A lot of times too, I think sometimes I've heard the stories where people will like just make the jump and move straight to New York, move straight to Los Angeles, get completely right. overwhelmed. Exactly. And then be like, this is like, I'm glad that I didn't actually move to New York when I was like totally. 19 or 20. I'm glad that I had that time in Boston to sort of like grow and sort of get a grasp on the path that I wanted to get rather than going and get completely pulled over to a place that felt too big. But again, that's for everybody to decide um, themselves. And you'll know it. Trust your gut. You know, listen to think, take a, have a good, long conversation with yourself about what it is that you have in terms of your goals and your commitment level and where you want to go and what it means to you. What do you actually, what's interesting about pursuing a career in music for you? What do you feel connected to? Yep. That can be something too, because when the chips are down, the thing that's going to get you through is riding on your passion as opposed to like the steady paycheck and stuff. And I don't know, for me, I'm the type of person where I would rather actually have a more enjoyable quality of life where I feel like my time on this planet is meaningful to me as opposed to that I'm just stuck in a gig because of the money and I was afraid to get out of it to like make the jump. And everybody knows that there's always somebody in the family that goes like, well, at least this is steady. You know, right. don't look at the paycheck and gift in the mouth. It's a thing. It's like whatever, but you got to just like make that decision for your own. And like, if you're deciding to be an artist, take that mantle up with pride go out there, face the unknown, throw yourself into the goddamn void and give it your all. And who knows what may be around the bend, but like you said, fortune favors the bold. You have to be willing to take some risk out there to get that reward. Do you know what I mean? Or if you say like, eh, it's not really for me. I don't really want to be a songwriter. I'm, I'm happy. I'd like to just, you know, be like a great session guitar player and work with amazing artists and, you know, contribute to the production of uh, certain records. I'm like, awesome, man. And get out there, like learn your craft and learn what it means to be a really great contributing member. Develop your technical skills and your creative skills so that when in the moment you're called upon to, to submit an idea, you've got some, some cool stuff happening and you know how to listen. You know how to like kind of read the room and understand like where's the direction of uh, the project going and how can you best complement that, you know, and be a good part of the team that's been assembled to help see that through. Exactly. So I could talk to you all day about this stuff, but I'm just going to ask you two more questions. Yes. Um, great segue. Um, so actually, the um, th yeah, I believe the final chapter in the, the book is is about a team. When do I need an attorney, business manager, manager, et cetera, to, to finding an artist traditional team? So um, I don't, you probably have an, an attorney, but I don't know if you have representation otherwise for Brian Biglione. I don't. Uh, and, and let me let me add to that further. At the same time, you've built phenomenal relationships over the years. So you know you can come to me anytime or Dave Basin, your A&R person at Roadrunner is thinking of you for projects. So I also think that's why you don't necessarily need a team because you've cultivated all these great relationships al along the way. Well, there's some of that too. I mean, it's also, I mean, the level of work that I do. I mean, it's, it's I think, it would be pretty obvious to most people who, you know, would be somewhat informed about what I do uh, musically. Right. The bulk of the money that I earn is from the Dresden Dolls when we're able to tour. Other right. than that, obviously has been ex extremely difficult in the last two years. And I just suffered the, uh, the blow hearing that, you know, obviously the shows like many other bands yeah. tours that we were going to do for New Zealand, all of that's been canceled. So 
I need to step up and find like other ways of, you know, making it through financially when, you know, um, that's not going to be like an immediate, um, you know, situation presenting itself at this particular time. Um, and then, you know, I, I have a lot of supplemental income from the studio work that I do and, you know, and teaching drum lessons kind of like on the side, you know, yep. sort of one day a week and those sorts of things. So you diversify for me those things, but those are all very manual things. Like I haven't needed a lawyer to work out um, a contract totally. with um, a, something that I've gotten for sync or something like that. I've been working predominantly with bands on isolated projects as a recording uh, member. Um, so that's been fairly cut and dry, but you know, as things go on, sure. You know, when the situation presents itself and you have like a more complex legal arrangement, I, yeah, absolutely. Get, get those things happening. And most of the time I found too, like artists, like I'm, uh, like I said, I wanted to also, uh, plug the artists that I'm working with now, incredible singer, Veronica Swift, uh, who has just been making huge, huge waves in the, in the jazz scene for years now. Um, but she actually covered the Dresden doll song sing on her recent album, this bitter Love earth. Me. And I've now signed on to be, um, her drummer for upcoming shows in the spring. And right. she is working with a manager. She actually, um, is looking at it, talking to a, a fairly established manager, uh, in the near future. So the guy that she's working with now said, I think this person actually might be an even better fit. Um, but there's like a, you know, a whole host of, you know, road managers and logistics people that came along with the, with the gentleman that's uh, helping her out now. Um, so, and, and she definitely needs it. That's somebody who's working with uh, a record label, Mac Avenue, um, and, you know, doing promotional, uh, touring and interviews and, and all that kind of stuff and negotiating deals for shows and, and all that kind of stuff and, and seeing fairly significant guarantees, um, for, for an artist. So those kinds of things, I think you want to build towards that going back to our Dresden Dolls model of what you said before, when we started this, do as much of that work as you can independently so that you have a solid base of knowledge and sense of control over your career, you know, learn those things. And when you reach your full capacity and saying like, I, I've been doing this, I have this on lock, I know the system and how I want things run, then reach out to other people and say like, you, do you have what it takes to help continue the growth that I've already established myself? Sometimes it can be tricky because people sort of may feel inclined to jump to that prematurely going like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. I should just get a manager. I would go careful with that. Yeah. I would err on the side of knowing all too well what you're doing, but just not having enough hours in the day to get that done. You know what I mean? Rather than having somebody go like, oh, you don't know what you're doing, huh? Great. Well, I know exactly how to make money off of you. That's what I make my money from. Uh, And you don't want to find yourself in that position. So you know, stay on your game, stay educated and, and fi- again, find those team members that are, that reciprocate in the level of respect who believe in you. You want to find team members that also, it's like you said, the difference between a sycophant that's just like enamored and wants to like, sort of like follow you around rather yeah. than somebody who goes like, I really respect and believe in what you are doing as an artist. And I know what I can contribute to that. Right. That is key. Yeah. And again, um, so much of this is artist to artist, you know, and, and again, like reputation and, and preparation. It reminds me of, I always talk about, um, 
how artists get support slots, which you clarified very well, like artists make those decisions, you know? So you've built this, this great body of work because you've built a great reputation. It's like, you're on it, you show up on time, you're prepared. So other artists think of you and the word spreads. So you don't necessarily, yeah. So, um, artist to artist is very important. is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And, and again, too, it's, like I said, learning these titles, like, so they're like, what is a PRO? What is this publishing thing? Do? What does oh, that feel like? Yeah. I think people also feel like that too about basic, you know, team members too. A lot of people out there go like, I don't even know what a manager does. I'm yeah. totally in the dark. What does a booking agent do? Do they help me get on this? Like, do they, when I have an interview, like who handles that? You know what I mean? Right. Like finding out what different um, aspects of the music industry are about and what those people do, how not to get lured in by like sort of, you know, get rich quick sounding things. Hire my company for $1,200 a month and you'll be a big star. Right. Like learning how to screen all of that nonsense out and working with people that are effective uh, to the game plan that you have, or at least talking to other people so that you can then develop a game plan. Yep. You know? Exactly. And that's why I wrote this book and created this podcast. I actually didn't set out to do it. It's just musicians were asking me to get coffee or pick my brain or whatever. And I was ha having that same one hour conversation over and over and over. So um, yeah, well, that's why we're here. Thank you, Emily White, for sharing your, like I, I, the information that you're disseminating to the, the, the sponge like minds of the music public are just, it's invaluable. And we really, it is valuable. It's like incredibly valuable. And we thank you so much for doing that. I'm very excited that you're doing this podcast. I just, as I told you, had recommended your book to my good friend, Kafre, uh, who moved from Boston, one of the students at the Boston Day Evening Academy, who just moved out to Los Angeles with his wife. He's in music production. And I said, check out Emily White's book because he had a lot of these same questions as your listeners do. So thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for um, creating the edu educational opportunity for me to learn so many of these things. You bet. Teamwork. That's how you do. Exactly. Okay. Final question that I ask everyone. <laughs> what does building a sustainable music career mean to you? Oh, my goodness. Well, again, it's like I said, I have always been one to follow my passion over the dollar. I have done that a few times uh, where I said, well, I'll just take this gig, uh, you know, for the paycheck or just to try it out and realize that, that that's not something that is the most meaningful um, application of my drumming in the world. What I want to do is share the things that I'm passionate about. And so being like to align myself with a sustainable career, it's about becoming solid in what I do, sticking by what I believe and working with those kind of artists that were, will, you know, compensate me for my time, properly and with work that I truly believe in. And I've been very fortunate um, to, to have those experiences throughout my life. And believe me, a lot of that has entailed having to look at situations and kind of cut my losses and go like, okay, but this isn't going to hold me back. What I'm going to do is persevere rather than say like, well, this is getting difficult. So I guess I should just change course about who I am. I realized that that was impossible. I realized that the best thing that I could do was actually bolster who I am as a person, try to get better as a musician, learn more um, about sort of like my studio expertise to be like helpful and useful in those situations in that capacity. How can I be the best member of a touring party? And then continue to align myself with artists that I really truly believed in their music. And that has led me to the place where I'm now living in Los Angeles 
extremely happy with the way things are going in spite of the fact that tours are being canceled and venues are shutting down to like all sorts of things like that. I'm not sitting here going, man, I regret X or damn, I wish I had done this. That to me would be, even if I was working, but feeling like that inside, I wouldn't feel like I was sustaining. I would feel like I was drowning. So to me, it's about follow your, your, your impulse, follow your, your bliss, you know, quote uh, Joseph Campbell there. But, um, that's really what it means. You know, believe in your dream, work at it, and then go after it. I love it. Brian, thank you so much for your time and your talent and your wisdom. Where can folks find you on social? Uh, well, uh, on Instagram, Brian Viglione. Same thing on Facebook and uh, the website too, you know, brian-viglione.com. And uh, thank you again, Emily, for having me. Hey there, host Emily White here, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brian Viglione as much as I did, frankly. Um, I just wanted to review the revenue stream checklist from the perspective of a session musician and also see if we can get creative here. So as some of you know, I have two revenue stream checklists. The first, not to be confusing because that's not who this episode is for, but the first is from the perspective of artists who write, record, and write and record their music and also perform live. And then I also have a bonus revenue stream checklist. So let's review these and see how they um, could potentially affect uh, a session musician. So the first, I'll I'll actually lump the first two together, even though they are separate, distribution and direct-to-fan digital distribution. So for the most part, if you're uh, if you're being paid cash, you know, and you've signed your work for hire, you do not participate um, in those revenue streams. However, we talked about if there is truly no cash to pay you, um, being awarded points or a percentage on the master side. That is very unconventional. <laughs> that is very new school. Um, let me know how those conversations are going, but I'm definitely talking about on the brand new local level, instead of just trading favors, you know, start to monetize and incentivize each other. So I hope that makes sense. I have more detail on that in the book. Um, Performing rights organizations. So in the US, that's ASCAP and BMI. Um, Brian Viglione talked about that when he's received writing credit. He makes sure that he goes and registers his share in his songs on ASCAP. He's an ASCAP songwriter. And as you've heard throughout this podcast, if you have any sort of songwriting credits and your songs are being sold, streamed, covered, any of the above, and you are just signed up for a performing rights organization, you are missing out on your music publishing revenue stream. So in that instance, please sign up for Song Trust, which has totally democratized music publishing. Yes, they have sponsored some episodes on this podcast, but I was an evangelist for them before that. Um, I only work with sponsors on this podcast authentically that I truly um, know will help you. Now, you can also have your publishing collected on, of course, by a publishing company that can be an admin or a co-pub deal. Go back to the music publishing isn't scary or confusing episode or chapter in the book for more detail on that. Sound exchange. Um, I also could have lumped that in with distribution and direct-to-fan digital distribution because sound exchange is our, our royalties on the master recording side um, for non-interactive 
uh, radio, so internet radio, so basically Sirius and Pandora. So again, if you've signed to work for hire and you've been paid cash, um, you do not participate in that revenue stream. But if you're getting creative with an artist who truly has no cash to pay you and they've awarded you some points on the master side, then um, yes, please go sign up for a sound exchange. Maybe sign up anyway, just in case. You never know. Um, Patreon. I think this is really interesting because as you build up your career as a session musician, and I've, I've received this question a lot at speaking engagements from artists of all ages, you have fans and followers, and it's also on you to put yourself out there. You know, so I, I know this episode is very drumming centric because it was inspired by a listener who is a drummer. Um, and then, of course, Brian Viglione is also a drummer, but he's a multi-instrumentalist, too. Now, Brian, <clears throat> excuse me, Brian Viglione has not done this, but he would be a perfect candidate to do so. So he could launch a Patreon and have different tiers of drumming lessons or exclusive clips and photos and things like that. So um, you, too, can build your fan base and collect that data through Patreon. Definitely keep that in mind. Um, again, Brian Viglione is a great example of the next one, um, online merchandise. I have a Brian Viglione drumming t-shirt that I wear um, regularly. So get creative, right? You could, I, Again, I don't, I'm sorry to focus so specifically on drummers, but you could have, you know, autographed drumsticks. Um, if you're a guitar player or a bass player, you could give away old strings. Um, there's also a really great uh, charity that makes guitar string bracelets. Um, so you could partner with them. Um, and I mean, this isn't necessarily a revenue stream. It's just a cool thing to do instead of throwing out strings and turn your strings, your, your used strings into guitar string bracelets, and then give that money to a charity of your choice. And don't quote me on this, but the guitar string bracelet people, they're called wear your music. Maybe they would even split that revenue with you, you know, like half goes to you and half goes to a charity of your choice. Live performances and webcasts, I've definitely seen Wilco's drummer um, perform live solo. Um, you could start playing around with that on Instagram Live, um, eventually do, you know, donation-based or hard-ticketed performances, both online and in person. And then, of course, don't forget live merchandise. You know, if, if you're playing with someone and you do have guitar string bracelets or, um, you know autographed drumsticks, use drumsticks, like see if uh, the artists you're playing with will let you sell that at the merch table. I, I have, I don't know the people you're, you're working with, so I don't know if they'll be cool with that or not, but can't hurt to ask, right? Like that was the theme of this, the subheading of this episode, put yourself out there. So now here are the bonus revenue streams, VIP live show offerings. So maybe for this online, you could do more limited um, webcasts, maybe it's limited to five or 10 or 20 people, depending on, uh, you know, how many, how many folks you're drawing. And that could also include like a private Q and a, um, which I think would be really cool. Um, and of course you could do that in person, um, for any sort of solo shows, uh, that you're doing as, as a session musician, uh, live, live recordings. Um, <clears throat> okay. So some of these other things, and you all tell me if this works or it gets you in trouble with um, the folks that you're playing with. But, you know, some of these, you know, if you're if you're working with an artist who, you know, sings, writes, records, plays live. Um, you and and like we all know how much how time consuming that can be. So maybe you could say to them, like, hey, I have some 
ideas, you know, that I'd love to execute on and could I be compensated for doing so? And I'm not saying you're managing this artist, but a um, standard commission would be 15% for a manager to do a lot of these things. So maybe you could propose that. Um, So the next one is live recordings. Um, I've talked throughout the podcast that um, I feel like now that so many artists own their master recording rights, because to clarify, you know, in the pre-digital era, you would have to be signed to a label basically to be able to uh, afford recording. But um, and then when you were signed to a label, they wouldn't let you record your shows and do anything with that because they didn't want it to compete with the CD or the vinyl or whatever they were, whatever they were releasing. So maybe that's something you could spearhead, you know, if you're touring um, and playing with someone saying, hey, have you ever thought about recording these shows? Like maybe that's something you could set up for them and create a new revenue stream for them and then receive a percentage on that. Um, Same with this is this is a lot more work. Um, So don't don't feel um, don't feel bad if you're overwhelmed by this idea. But um, catalog releases on vinyl and coalition of independent music stores distribution. Almost every time my company works with an artist, we look at their catalog and notice that um, not all of their releases are available on vinyl. So right there, you have a revenue stream for like every year um, for like for every release that you haven't put out on vinyl, you could do that every year until you're caught up, if that makes sense. So if that's something you want to spearhead um, for the artists you're playing with, again, please make sure you get compensated with some sort of um, commission. I would recommend uh, 15%. And, you know, not to get too complicated, but you could do, um, you know, 15% of the net, right, after expenses when you're dealing with vinyl and physical goods, Or you could do 7.5% of the gross, which almost always comes out to very similar numbers. And that's a lot easier math than deducting all the shipping and and manufacturing costs. Although, of course, there are on-demand vinyl where the margins aren't as great and, you know, you want to definitely check quality in advance, um, but that can also make your lives a lot easier. Sheet music, um, that's something that was very much inspired working with the Dresden Dolls. I'm sure I shared this story. So again, uh, maybe this is something you could spearhead for a commission if you want. I'm laughing because this was a lot of work also. But because the Dresden Dolls um, are a keyboard drum duo, we used to get a lot of requests for sheet music, for piano music. And Amanda Palmer had the brilliant idea. Actually, I mean, no offense to Amanda. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think she was thinking about marketing. Um, when she did this, but she ended up, um, we ended up making the, the Dresden Dolls first album's sheet music book into a really beautiful book of, you know, photographs from the recordings, lyrics, um, a lot of things that people who can't read sheet music would be into. So again, if that's something you want to spearhead, maybe start digital because that book got really expensive, but, but it also, um, was really well done and, and, Amanda and Brian put a lot of thought and effort into it. So it ended up being like a $50 coffee table book that tons of fans were buying who couldn't even read read sheet music. Um, music lessons. Brian Viglione talked about uh, having having drum lesson or drum students of all ages. And I have a like one of my favorite photos ever in life is in the book of Brian with one of his drum students, and his student just looks so thrilled to be there. So um, keep that in mind. I know plenty of artists that have 
um, done lessons, you know, over Zoom or Skype or whatever. So it doesn't necessarily have to be in person. Podcast revenue. Start a podcast of what it's like to be a session musician, right? Like it's a great way to promote yourself. You can also have guests on that you want to get to know and you want to learn about. It is hard to make money uh, on a podcast. I Maybe I'll make a podcast <laughs> episode about that someday. Um, the royalties are worse if uh, worse or non-existent um, as far as podcast. Worse than, I'm trying to say worse than musicians because uh, Spotify pays nothing to podcasters, but they they change it all the time and it depends on who your distributor is. So it's... Uh, it's the Wild West, but I don't think it's really heading in, in creators' favor, unfortunately. But, of course, um, if you're working with any sponsors, um, it could be locally, right? It doesn't necessar- necessarily have to have to do with music, or it could be gear-related. Um, it's interesting. The sponsors we've had on this podcast have been much more interested in sponsoring episodes where they know musicians are going to be listening who want to learn this stuff, as opposed to... Um, I'm just going to be really frank, like the Bone of Air episode is not sponsored because that might not be as much of a B2B or business to business episode for people. So, um, you know, I maybe this episode will be sponsored by the time it's out. But for example, I said to Brian Biglione, hey, um, do you want me to hit up any of your gear sponsors and see if they're interested in sponsoring this episode? Um, so if you are working with any gear companies uh, that's something you could do. And even if they don't have a budget, maybe they're down to give away some strings or, um, you know, some gear and and help promote your podcast on social to continue to spread the word about you. Um, branding sponsorships and endorsements. I pretty much just talked about that, but that's definitely a no brainer, not a no brainer because it, it's hard, but that's definitely a solid revenue stream for so many session and, and touring music- musicians. You all know that. And Many of you are very good at, at building those relationships as well. And also when you have those relationships, don't forget to tag them, you know, ha- add them to your bio, all that good stuff. Even if even if they're just giving you free gear, um, that obviously saves you money and that's a great place to start. Speaking engagements, that's a great way to put yourself out there. Um, you can be proactive. You could reach out to even a high school music program or a grade school music program or university music programs. They want your expertise, they want your experience. And even if you don't get paid for that stuff uh, right away, you can post about it on your social media and it almost always leads to more speaking gigs. Um, Always ask if there's some sort of budget. Uh, Very often there's a stipend, even if it's a hundred bucks, 500 bucks, whatever, it all helps. Um, Sync licenses, that's also only going to be if you are participating on the master recording or the publishing side. Um, so we, we've covered that. If you do fall in that category and sinks are landed, you know, it's a bonus revenue stream because you can't count on it, but it is, an, it is a revenue stream nonetheless. YouTube royalties, um, again, if you're participating in any music publishing, um, that's going to be covered by Song Trust and or your music publishing administrator. And then um, on the master side, and this is definitely a missing revenue stream uh, for artists. So again, this is maybe something you could suggest or ask about if, if you don't feel like that's being too obnoxious um, to the artists you're working with. I really like, um, there's a company called IND Music, but they're now owned by Live Nation. Um, so if you just uh, Google that, <laughs> IND Music Live Nation, you can, you can find the contacts for them. And they do a really great job of collecting YouTube royalties on the master recording side. So don't forget about collecting that revenue. But 
I, ultimately, I put YouTube royalties in the bonus revenues category because um, the rates tend to be fairly low. But you know, we do have artists who do well on YouTube. So, um, and I don't, I don't even care what you're collecting. I just want, I, I just want to make sure everything is being collected on, so you can continue to grow it. Of course, you all know this better than anyone. Playing on other artists' recordings or session work and shows. I mean, that's literally what this episode's about. And then, of course, producing, mixing, mastering, remixing other artists' recordings or arranging songs for other artists. So I hope um, Brian D., who's the listener that inspired this episode, um, enjoyed it. And yeah, we're really just going to do, I I believe we're just going to do one last episode of this season. And so the next one I'm working on is how to be a touring crew member, which isn't necessarily for musicians, right? But um, it's also going to help musicians with certain expectations as you grow your, your live show and expand your touring crew. So stay tuned for that. And I'll be in touch with more information after that. So thank you again to Brian Biglione. Thank you to my amazing engineer, Nathan Kane. Thank you to Matthew Wong for composing our beautiful podcast music. Be well, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks again.